alive. <laughs> I didn't even mean to. That's okay. Um, to answer your question, Jake, it should just, um, it should basically walk you through it. It's uh, you, you log into your accounts and link them through the link that I sent you. Okay, hold on a second. Um, anyway, I guess we'll jump right into the intro since my dumb ass hit go live before we were ready. It's saying, um, Jesse, Nadu you can't do the stream. Conrad should mute their phones. Conrad should mute their phones, please. We're getting a lot of echo. Uh, what was Rob. What, what was that you were just saying, comma? It's saying Jesse Nader is trying to find a stream. Hold on. I, I mean, I literally just hit go live, so it wouldn't have been there like 30 seconds ago. Um, I guess I'll take this moment to announce that our YouTube channel is no more. Um, no specific reasons were given, but I would assume that it would be to the anti-capitalist nature of our program. Um, so we are on Facebook, Twitch, and Twitter currently. Um, if we want to just like go around the room and everybody kind of introduce yourself, I feel like that's a good way to start. Um, hi, I'm Kama Patel. I have a, a degree in criminal justice and a Juris Doctorate from Northeastern. And I've consulted with police departments across Massachusetts, specifically around Boston and uh, the South Suburban Boston. And uh, I am here and I'm very grateful to be here. Anyone Who's else? next? Jack <laughs> should go next. All power to the people. This is Chairman Shaka Zulu, the new African Black Panther Party. I'm here specifically to represent our ideological and political line as a represent to pig terrorism in this community. I'm a revolutionary and the struggle is my life. All power to the people. Power to the people. Jake, you want to go next? To have a young Lord Comrade go next. I don't know if anybody else is here. So I'm Alyssa. I'm the Minister of Defense for the Tri-State New England chapter of New Area Lords. All power to the people. Um, Tom, you want to go next? You want me to go? Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm Tom Watts, uh, original White Panther. Uh, I'm an elder advisor to New African Black Panther Party, White Panther Party, and the Rainbow Coalition. All power. Jake. Jake Hansberry, I'm chairman of the White Panther Party. Um, and then Kat. Hi, I'm Kat. I'm Secretary General of the White Panther Party. Um, nice to be here. Glad that you're here. Uh, Captain Africa, you want to go next? 
I don't know if you're talking, you're muted. No, okay. Anybody else want to uh, introduce themselves or should we just dive right in? Actually, I see uh, I see Zombie just joined if you want to introduce yourself. I did, thank you. I'm Zombie, I'm a member of Guardian Rebellion. Hell yeah. Oh, Paul. Is Paul on here? All power to the people. Yeah, I'm here. Um, Deputy Chairman of the Young Lords in Illinois. All power to the people. All, All power, power to, to the people. people. All power to the people. Um, all right. So I guess like let's uh, get this underway by kind of I'll pass the mic off to Kama and uh, we'll just kind of like give an, an overview of the past few decades in police funding and uh in in respect to directly to the uh funding as funding increases so do the number of people killed by police every year mm -hmm. um so we're going to talk about some of the statistics behind that all right to the statistics of police funding okay so well let's go to 2022 alone um, and just to let you know, there's a couple people who are on the site who can't get to the video, just to let you know, uh, for some reason, getting messages. Yeah. yeah, it's because that video is linked to our YouTube. I'm actually in the process of uh, trying to fix that with a different feed right now. Okay, hold on one second. Let me just let them know. Um, hold on. Yeah, if you can have them just go to our Facebook page, they should be there they said that um they're trying to but they aren't able to get to the video for some reason so i think um comrade rob is uh fixing it now yeah i just hit update um have them refresh the page and it should be there or have them refresh probably in like 30 seconds and it should be there hold on I apologize to everyone for us uh, working out the kinks on this. We did not expect our uh, YouTube channel to be removed the same day as this event. Um, part of me really thinks that's not a coincidence. Uh, no, it's probably not. And we're not, um, we're volunteers. We don't get funding. We don't get donations from corporations, one percenters or politicians, of course. So um, hold on. She found it. Awesome. Great. Okay. Uh, so police funding, let me go into that. Let's go into 2022 right now. Okay. After all that's happened uh, in the past, just five years alone, uh, George Floyd, Brianna, let's go with the three big cases, George Floyd, Brianna Taylor, uh, Ahmaud Arbery. Um, we go to right now, uh, Tyree Nichols, now a Tortuguita. We are looking at funding by Biden going to $37 billion nationwide. Now at his uh, presidential election ceremony, he thanked the black community. It's interesting that he thanks the black community with more cops. Um, let me go into the percentage of, okay, hold on one second. Um, first of all, the white community, okay, the white majority is 75.8% of the population, correct? So when it comes to traffic stops, the black population uh, is about 12%, 13% of the population, right? 
Six, they are 63% more likely to be stopped and they drive 16% less than uh, the white majority. So taking that into account, they're 95% more likely to be stopped at traffic stops and 115% more likely to be searched than the white majority. Uh, over the years, Reagan put 180 Reagan through Reagan's presidency, two terms, $180 billion, supposedly, according to NYU. Uh, and we're talking about the 80s. The war on drugs was, in fact, a war on the black, young black community. Um, people, the certain statutes that were passed during his administration, felony murder statute, was also a war on the black community. The reason why is because um, nonviolent marijuana offenses, people were going away for um, decades, 40 years at times. This was in fact a concerted effort by his administration to um, basically keep the clap classes where they're at. During his administration also, um, the black community statewide, prior to this, uh, state universities were almost free as far as tuition. Once he was in office, state universities started implementing tuitions. So there is a causal uh, connection between um, more cops, money, and a division of and the and a division of the classes, um, and that is directly linked to our system that is in place right now. I believe, which is capitalism. Um, specifically, if we're getting into so that's funding, and that and I went through the percentages of how many of how black the black community is stopped for traffic stops, um, and I have specific questions that people have sent me, but we can go over that in a little bit. Um, did you guys have any other questions regarding funding, statistics? First of all, crime rate has been steadily going down in the past 20 years. Um, and that is not a correlation to uh, more uh, the increased presence of police. In fact, there is no correlation according to NYU between increased presence of police and the decrease in crime. The correlation between decrease in crime has to do directly with poverty levels. If we decrease poverty, if we get more money into communities for these programs that hopefully are not band-aids, we will see a decrease in crime. The reason why specifically also um, NYU and NIH has specifically reasoned as to why there's more of a presence of cops in certain communities is directly related to property and real estate and propaganda. The more black families move into places like for instance in Michigan, Lily White Livonia, where I live, uh, you can look me up anyways, it doesn't really matter where I live for instance. We, there's a certain amount that is acceptable of people of color. This specifically relates to the black community. Above that certain level, it is considered, it is, it's, it's been seen that through propaganda, a lot of the white communities in these suburbs do a, what's called a white flight. 
They leave these once very white communities once there's a level of the black community that is actually seen on the streets, in the schools. This is directly related basically to uh, the increase in cops and real estate. And real estate prices specifically supposedly go down even though um, the black community in these previous white communities don't commit the crimes. They are just trying to live their lives in these communities. So um, in order to stop that from happening, for instance, in a very close town of mine called Livonia, um, it is expected, even though the Livonia crime rate has gone down, they're still gonna be hiring 16 new cops. Why? Traffic stops. So um, basically uh, that's an overview of what I've seen. And then of course, I've got like 20 questions from people from all over the world actually. Um, and the whole world is watching Cop City. It's not just America. It's not just uh, North America. It is the entire world right now. And um, a lot of the older population and libs and people who are privileged don't even know what's going on in Cop City right now. So um, I'll hand it over to whoever wants to speak next. Uh, Chairman Jake's got his hand up. Uh, you're I can't muted, hear you. Jay. Yeah, sorry. Uh, so related to the white flight situation, uh, mm -hmm. there's there's one aspect that is that I think that, uh, often neglected, um, and it's not that I yeah, I'm, everything that you said was was awesome. But as far you know, as I don't as, take anything personally. Don't worry. Right. It, it's just uh, in the argument about white flight. One thing that's always left out is the fact that uh, the the specific. Uh, the class that this applies to is often petty bourgeois. Uh, most of these communities are middle-class white communities mm -hmm. um, and the property values are obviously, in order for them to go down, mm -hmm. right? Uh, because of the presence of a black person, uh, uh, you know, uh, with the crime rates, you know, it, you know, the, with the crime rate being involved as well, these kinds of things, mm -hmm. uh, it has to be, it has to be a petty bourgeois neighborhood. It has to be a petty bourgeois community. Um, so, oftentimes, in in relation to that phenomena, what you're really seeing is uh, kind of this management class, this uh, mom and pop class within the white community that is they're they're desperately trying to cling on to these values that have been instilled to, have been instilled in them from uh from this capitalist superstructure that we have so uh well let that's me say one, that's one thing i don't want people to lose sight of is is the actual uh class the demographic of class in on the ground in, in these neighborhoods you know it's not to say that um there are you know my point is to say that when a, a when black people move into a, a poor white neighborhood it doesn't make the property value go down correct you know what i mean uh and it it doesn't make white people leave either because they can't leave. They're economically restricted to that area. Mm -hmm. So these are these are just two factors that I wanted to point out here. When you're talking about overall the structure, mm -hmm. uh, the the statistics that we have uh, in this country, most of the those neighborhoods that you're seeing uh, you're seeing white flight happen in 
that's that's a predominantly middle to upper class uh, uh, area, just because mm -hmm. of economic reasons. People are economically confined. Mm -hmm. Agreed, agreed. And it's also very systemic as far as the propaganda that has been uh, perpetuated. This is related to banks, um, any kind of credit institution, appraisers also um, will appraise a home that is close to uh, black neighborhoods as less uh, than their actual value. This is, I believe, a very systemic problem that is infiltrated all of America, if not the world. So, but I agree with you, uh, comrade, Chairman Jake. Uh, Tom's got his hand up. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say when we're talking about the black community, we're also talking about Native Americans, uh, uh, Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, uh, all of the oppressed peoples. Uh, in fact, I think the, the statistics are the worst for the Native Americans. Um, and when we talk about white, like uh, Jake was pointing out, there's a, a class divide between poor whites and uh, the middle class and upper class. Um, you know, one of the, the Appalachian people uh, are as victimized as anybody else when it comes to the police, you know. Most definitely, but they are segregated also onto reservations, many of them. Um, and they live in very poor conditions as well. So that's partially why their traffic stops are less. And also they, um, unlike the white majority, they also do not drive as much as the white majority as, as I had pointed out as far as the black population. But by, um, for sure, black, uh, indigenous, people of color, people of color are Hispanics, indigenous and black, as I said, so BIPOC for sure, as a whole are affected. Um, so in the comments, somebody said separate but equal never went away. It simply hi uh, hid behind coded language. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, I, I think that's. It hid behind criminal law, laws that were um, criminal types of laws like felony murder, um, marijuana offenses. Um, and when you take away young black men from a community, um, you're taking away a part of the family. You're taking away the wage earners, a lot of them. You're forcing the mother to be the matriarch, the matriarch and the only... I. I see war god here, <laughs> um, <clears throat> but uh, you're taking away basically the major wage earners and the people who actually, uh, you're basically breaking up a family. And that's exactly what has happened in the marginalized black communities. Are we still? Uh, yeah, really Dying. quickly, can I just add something to that? Uh, uh, analysis that Tom and I provided on uh, that one statistic. Um, it's that uh, by and large within the poor white community, there isn't a class incentive for racism mm -hmm. uh, because you don't, it's not a material issue to you. You're more concerned with paying your bills, keeping your lights on than you are with hating your neighbor. 
Um, and it's not to say that there aren't racists in the poor white community. It's just that it comes out of a different tendency. Uh, some of it is a lump in tendency where you get street gangs who are all poor people who are just trying to survive by and large. And they group together in, you know, in a, in a form of collective struggle, it's oftentimes counter to their actual class interests. But the point is, is it tends to be grouped, depending on where it is in the country, it tends to be grouped upon racial lines. And that's where a lot of the racial tensions tend to come from. So in the poor white community, I know out here, one of the, the, the main uh, set of neighborhoods is in Gary and the white communities in Indiana, uh, Northwest Indiana, view Gary as this crime ridden place full of black people. And they see all the crimes happening in their community and they always want to attribute it to them. What they don't realize is that the crime that's coming out of Gary has to do more with the lumpen tendencies. It has to do with the collective struggle to survive. Also had to do with that white flight because Gary used to be a middle-class area. Mm -hmm. And when the mill started to close down, it's, uh, you know, a lot of its operations and started offshoring uh, job market declined. Uh, the, the white people who live in Gary left that city and the city went bankrupt. So it came under, and there are, there are, there is a white population in Gary too, but you won't find whites in Gary who hate black people. I mean, it's just, if you do, it's they're, they're living on the on the edge. They're living in a swampland or something. You know what I mean? Uh, and that just has to do with this fact that these people don't have an incentive to to feel that way. You know, it, it's immaterial to them. Whereas mm -hmm. somebody who is rich has far more of an incentive to to not only hate them uh, based on some kind of notion of biological superiority, but on some kind of notion of uh uh an anti-socialist mm -hmm. perspective you know what i mean it's far easier to prevent unionization in a workplace you control if you could create a racial division for example mm -hmm. and that's just one way that this is used uh so i just wanted to point that out too is a try to nuance that perspective a little bit more but i'd much rather want to hear from our new african and uh puerto rican comrades here well, can I just make one one point, um, comrade, is that um, the biggest difference between black poor and white poor is a lot is the opportunity. It was a concerted effort to keep the black poor segregated from the white poor. White poor in across the nation have has access to um, be able to apply to different communities, such as here in West Bloomfield, and are given housing at lower costs and are able to have access to the edu educational system in West Bloomfield, for instance, whereas a black poor has not. So that is like the biggest difference that I've seen as far as um, what I've read um, when it, in regards to uh, both races of poor. But go ahead, sorry. Does anybody else want to speak or, or maybe? All uh, oh, power to the people. Uh, is Chairman Shaka Zulu of the New African Black Panther Party. First, I want to state that I don't think when it comes to pig terrorism in our community that poverty was a beachhead from which 
uh, the pig organized the police against us. Mm -hmm. From the very inception of this country, the pig has been set up as an instrument or a hired gun to make sure that those in power remain in power and those at the bottom stay at the bottom. At the, uh, in, in 1673, I may be off a few years, you had a bacon rebellion in the South where this guy was upset that he had a little bit of land and he wanted more land from the Berkeley government at the time and he couldn't get it. So he organized some indigenous uh, 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 people, some uh, African people uh, and some poor whites into an army in which they attacked Virginia. Uh, and they almost succeeded until he got uh, uh, sick and died uh, and the struggle phased out. But the point here is that when Blacks came to this country, they came here specifically for economic purpose. And we need to keep that in mind. I don't think, I don't think white flight, I don't think uh, uh, poverty per se uh, have any kind of major reason for why Blacks in this country are at the bottom. It's the fact that the ruling class has a special hate reserved for blacks all over the world because of the guilt, the conscious, the guilt conscious they have, uh, or not everyone, but those who have a sympathetic view to the crimes they committed against the people. And so in order to maintain their dominance around the world, especially here in the United States, the belly of the beast, you have to have a force in place to divide the masses and to keep the masses in check and to monitor and surveil the masses. And one mm -hmm. of those forces was racism, which is a byproduct of capitalism. Racism is not the reason why we're poor. Racism is an expression of uh, pseudo ideology to keep the masses divided. We're poor because we are at the bottom of this society. We have always been at the bottom of society since 1619, when 20 blacks were injected into Jamestown, Virginia. And so we have to look at it from a historical perspective because if we look at it from the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, when neoliberalism came into play, uh, all the way up until the war on the poor, uh, the mass incarceration system, if we just look at it from that perspective, we'll be doing ourselves a disservice because we won't have the full picture. We won't have an all-sided perspective. The source of policing, not just here in the United States, but around the world stem directly from the aggressive desire of those in power to maintain that power at any expense. They don't have 800 military bases loaded, ready, uh, and to go on air, land, and sea, pointed at China, pointed at Iran, and the rest of the uh, non-white world uh, because it's a good thing to do. They have it there because guns, bullets, uh, police, armies represent the interests of those in power. And in this, in this society where here, African people, or new African people are neo-colonial people. We are a people who have been rejected uh, and subjected to the boot of our enemy. And so we believe that 
the statistics is good. Uh, the analysis around how the pig forces are militarized and what monies go to what police forces are real good. And we need that analysis as we go into battle with ideas. But ultimately, ultimately it boils down to understanding that the police in our community represent an occupation force. There's no reform there. There's no reasoning there. There's no sympathy we should have for this system because it represents an antithetical way of life. It's, it's a poisonous, it's a vampire, it's a millstone around the necks of the masses of the people, whether you're in a brown community, black community, indigenous community, or the oppressed New African community. For us, like the original Black Panther Party said, the only good pig is a dead pig to feed to the masses who are hungry. And we live by that. It is a good mantra, and we should uphold it as a banner to how we see the police force, all power to the people. Chair, Chairman, I just had a question. This is a question that was posed to me. Why do you what it why do you believe that the that the white privileged class really wants is more is comfortable? with, for instance, $37 billion being put into cops nationwide by um, President Forsyth, a Biden. All power, all power to the people, good question. Well, first, let me say Jim Crow Biden didn't fool us. It didn't fool anyone in the revolutionary movement that we associated with. We know he's an advocate of more police. In fact, he was responsible for calling us super predators in 94, along with Hillary Clinton, when they describe mm -hmm. why they want more uh, police and prisons in this country. But I think the white community, those who are in pri uh, privileged positions, uh, have a tendency to accept what their leaders say on face value. Exactly. They have, the, they have, they have this tendency to look at the rest, rest of the world through the lenses of their leaders because historically, the system has worked for them. The system has been an instrument by which they were able to keep their plantation, keep their cars, keep their corporate jobs, keep their prestige, and most importantly, keep this country uh, connected to the capitalist orbit. And so privileged classes will only break and asunder when the movement on the street is powerful. If you look at how revolutions around the world uh, 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 arrive, they, they, they arrive from this perspective. When the grassroots, when the armed forces in the communities that are being oppressed and exploited organize the masses of the people and their strength and they are in the streets and you see this visible mass of people on the streets, the ruler of the petty bourgeois class then say, wow, Every day I go into that community to sell my wares at the store, or every day I open up my office as a doctor, or every day I go into that community to, to teach uh, education. This is the petty bourgeois class. And so they have to begin to now consider putting their weight in the front behind the upsurge of the community because the petty bourgeois see going to hinge their bet to whatever is strong. Whatever the political wind is blowing, that's where the privileged classes are going to go. And so it's important to understand just because the privileged classes are advocating for more police and more 
uh, uh, repressive mechanisms in our community, it doesn't mean anything when the vast majority of our oppressed brothers and sisters in a multiracial sense are organized uh, uh, as revolutionary uh, Panther towns or revolutionary uh, Palante towns or revolutionary uh, uh, hillbilly towns. It doesn't matter what the pig get because the power of the people is stronger than the enemy's technology. All power to the people. So um, just one question, Chairman. As um, Chairman of the Black Panther Party, what do you think as far as, um, first of all, how do you define petty bourgeois for the people who are uh, not accustomed to that term? And number two, um, how do you feel about, um, for instance, um, actually just answer that question. <laughs> Because I think a lot of people who are older who are watching this don't understand that term at all. What is the financial, um, uh, you know, where do we fall finance-wise as far as a per-family um, capita earning income when you talk about petty bourgeois? All power to the people. No, that's a great question. I remember when I was sitting in the enemy prison a few years ago and Oprah Winfrey had a show on class. Mm -hmm. And she asked a few people in the audience, what is class to you? And some people said, well, having good fingernails, that's class. Uh, taking showers every day, that's class. Mm -hmm. uh, being respectable, that's class. But what that showed me in my little infant stage of revolutionary development was that America has no clue what class is, what class struggle is, what class oppression is, what class exploitation is. And there's an uh, explanation for why that is the case. But I think when you talk about petty bourgeois, it has to be defined according to external contradictions or material contradictions in each community. For us, in our community, we are at the bottom of society, uh, poor Black folk. So when someone in our community open up a business and they don't use those resources to empower the masses and they take that bag of money out of town uh, uh, at sundown, then we're going to call them an explorer. We're going to call them a petty bourgeois explorer because they have shown in practice they're more concerned uh, about being greedy and taking that money to another town than empowering the people. So for us, African people, a petty bourgeois person is anyone that is more concerned about padding their own pockets than empowering the people uh, and they use the rhetoric of empowerment to hide their dirty deeds. This is mm -hmm. what the uh, petty bourgeoisie does. It mm -hmm. hides their dirty deeds by saying, we support police. Look what, let me give you a good example. When George Floyd exploded across, the George Floyd rebellion exploded across the country, you had 23 days of national resistance against one specific entity in this country, and that was the pig force. Mm -hmm. Never in the history of the United States have you had 23 days of multiracial resistance against the police in this country. There have mm -hmm. always been Blacks who had to fight with allies against the police. But when George Floyd uh, a rebellion occurred, you see whites in rural areas walking in the streets, coming out of the cornfields saying, 
Black Lives Matter. You saw indigenous brothers and sisters leaving the reservation and saying indigenous and Black Lives Matter. You saw mm-hmm. our Latino brothers all over the world like uh, uh, saying that uh, uh, their lives matter along with Black Lives Matter. And they marched against the paid force because all of them were affected by that. And mm-hmm. Congress, and Congress, who are the representatives of the uh, ruling class, they put on their kente clause. They took a knee at Congress and said, we will never allow something like this to take uh, uh, place again. Now mm-hmm. for us, for us who are clear on who the enemy was, we saw this as a subterfuge, smoking mirrors, as a pacification tool. And this is what the enemy used to pacify us. So for mm-hmm. us, we have to make distinctions, comrade, where we at with respect to the class structure in our own communities. I would imagine that the young lords have a different analysis uh, as it pertains to the petty bourgeoisie in their community uh, in the same way with the brown, uh, I mean, with the uh, white comrades, because we all have external contradictions or material contradictions that are fundamentally different. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we look at a petty bourgeois person, a petty, someone who is more concerned with making a dollar bill rather than using a dollar bill to empower the people so they can become agents of change and enter political life as agents of change mm-hmm. or power to the people. Power to the people. And just one more question, um, uh, Chairman uh, Zula. I had a question about when we talk about revolutions um, in history, do you agree that it, we don't need a majority of the people, correct? We need a certain critical mass to come into the streets. Right now, um, we have in total, uh, including police, including National Guard, including the military, four million people, correct? So critical mass has been shown throughout history to be 3.5%. So in this country, 3.5% critical mass would be about 12 million people. So basically my question is, what do you think about critical mass versus majority? Because there seems to be this weird dream fairy tale that we need a majority of Americans and we don't. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. I think history uh, boils out here that a small, determined, indomitable, indomitable spirit can serve to incentivize people to get mobilized in the street. And mm-hmm. let me just give you one or two examples, and I'll be brief because I know there's other comrades on this panel, and I would love to hear from them. I remember reading up on Pedro uh, Albizo Campos, who was one of the great heroes of mine from Puerto Rico. And this cat was fiery. This cat was rejected, outcast, and spat upon by the privileged class in Puerto Rico. And so he went to the countryside along with the Machateros and other elements, and they began to organize there. And uh, they made a lot of mistakes early on, but they didn't give up. It was only a few of them, no more than 50, no more than 50. But after a few years, uh, with Pedro being captured, thrown in prison, and then released and ultimately murdered by the United States in prison, the nationalist movement exploded across the country. 
that in 55, you had an uprising. They had to call and give them a fake independence. And that's when Munoz came in power. So what I'm saying to you, comrade, is that if you look at the Montgomery bus boycott here in the United States, and I'm just using that as an example. I could give you a thousand more. But look at what Martin Luther King did at 55. Here, yes. he went in, here he went into a population that was beaten down, that was mowed down, that was hemmed in, that was told they were nothing. They were three-fifths of a human being. They couldn't read and write. This is what the population of people, Martin Luther King and the LCLC, injected themselves into. And it was only a few of them. It was only a few reverends when they went to Montgomery. And no one wanted to, and no one wanted to hear what they had to say. But they started the Montgomery bus boycott, and 365 days later, they were able to end uh, segregation in the interstate uh, uh, system there. So what I'm saying to you, comrade, is that as long as you got someone that is on the same page, that ideologically is on the same page with you, that had that indomitable spirit that is that is brave and that love the people, you can always start uh, an organization and that organization and capture, cap, then captures the spirit and love of the people to take on those in power. Like a good example would be our Rainbow Coalition. When we first started this thing, it was only a few of us. We started it here in the city of North New Jersey. In 2021, we brought uh, the Young Lords together and the New African uh, Black Panthers and our white allies. And it was only a few of us. And we was coming out of a very, very tense situation at the time. But now if you look at the Rainbow Coalition, we got eight organizations, I think nine now. And we're constantly growing and developing. And if we can leverage that power collectively across the country in a multiracial revolutionary sense, we'll put ourselves in a position to begin to bring Babylon to its knees. We can attack the dog from the inside and we can watch him bark and whine as he dies. That's the most important thing we recognize. Our multiracial unity can be leveraged to attack the dog enemy system. And so that's my point on that. And I want to I want to open it up to other comrades or power to the people. And just to add to that one one um what you what you actually pointed about, MLK only had 38% of the population agreeing with him, willing to march. AIDS movements uh, only had uh, 15% of the population at that time. And we were able to uh, shut down Wall Street in 1987. So definitely, uh, completely agree as far as critical mass. And I appreciate the, con I appreciate it. Hey, uh, let me just say this, let me just say this, and mm -hmm. I'll let the other comrades chime in. I remember comrade when the AIDS uh, movement exploded in 88, 89. I was very young uh, then, but I saw y'all comrades putting the work in in the streets. I saw y'all comrades disrupting senators and institutions. And mm -hmm. I think that was a most militant phase in which healthcare workers, along with activists, mm -hmm. took on the system in a very militant manner. So I just want to appreciate and acknowledge the work that you did with those comrades when y'all begin to break the, uh, or pull back the cover on the AIDS epidemic and expose it for what it was. All I appreciate the people. that. All power to the people. I appreciate that so much. Thank you, Chairman. Um, Tom has the floor after, if, if Shaka's done. 
I'm done kind of red all power. All power. Yeah, I just wanted to say that I'll just scroll what uh, Chairman Chaka was saying that uh, in the words of Fred Hampton, uh, it's a class struggle, goddammit. Uh, All power to the people. On, when they put more cops on the street, it's an act of class war. When they put more military around the world, it's an act of class war. America is no longer just a country, it's an empire, and it's an empire that stretches all around the world. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> they have a huge military, but that military spread pretty thin around the world. Most of it's in foreign bases. We have to unite our struggle, not just the black, brown, native, and other people here in, in the territorial United States. We have to unite with the people uh, of our class and the other oppressed classes like the peasantry all around the world into a powerful movement that targets the uh, imperialist ruling class and is prepared to go all out to overthrow them. Uh, you're talking about a minority and a, a critical mass and stuff. In the American Revolution, there was never a point when more than a third of the people supported the revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you know, they and you look at the Russian Revolution. The the proletariat in Russia was probably less than ten percent of the population. Uh, but in alliance with the peasantry and with the soldiers who were fed up with dying in the the First World War, uh, they were able to overthrow the the Tsar and the bourgeoisie. Uh, when Mao started in China, I think they they had like twenty some members when they formed the Communist Party. Uh, and, uh, you know, by 1949, uh, they had, you know, millions and millions of people uh, behind them in a, an organized army and were able to seize power. Uh, it doesn't, what, what the, the masses make the revolution, and there has to be a condition in which that the masses see that the, the system in power uh, is not going to get any better. It's not going to do anything for them other than put its boot farther on its neck. And it has to believe that there's a revolutionary force that has the people's interests at heart and is willing to go all the way and do whatever is necessary to win. And any bourgeoisie, well, that divides into two. Like uh, the, the upper section of the, the petty bourgeoisie, uh, they're so close to being rich, uh, you know, that they, they think they are the rich, you know. The rich figure, you've got to have at least a million dollars. Breaking up, Tom. You're breaking up pretty bad. We can't even hear you. Yeah. I wanted to add as far as I want to add as far as the marginalized communities on transgender, non-binary, LGBTQAI, but I, I wanted to specifically say transgender and non-binary as well. Transgender is gonna take a hit, it already has. Comrades, can you meet your phone, please? Can y'all meet your phone, please? Oh wow, who is that? 
Go ahead, comrade, sister. I think we lost them. No, you good. They muted their phones. Go ahead. You was asking a question. Was I asking a question? Who was asking the question? You was. Oh, I was. I that's true. I was. I wanted to add. It wasn't specifically a question, but I wanted to add that uh, transgender and non-binary are going to take a hit as well. Transgender um, transgender community has already taken hit hit as far as violence in this country. Fifty eight last year, fifty eight transgender humans were um, murdered um, just for being alive, and police nobody's covering that. Nobody's even investigating those murders. So no. I just and uh, fascists around the country have been specifically targeting them lately. For sure. And the Jewish American community is also going to take a hit as well. Yeah. Um, uh, Comrade Candy said uh, two spirited. Like I would love to hear what the Brown Beret comrade uh, have to say, Candy. And then we should invite the young Lord Paul to come on and speak. See what their positions are on this police pig terrorism thing. All power to the people. Um, can I ask you, um, a comrade Jake, uh, Chairman Jake, how old are you? I just want people to know how young you are, um, <laughs> because it's 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 inspiring. I say this because he has so much knowledge um, behind him, and. Uh, um, a lot of his generation, Gen Z, really agree with him. In fact, my daughter and son wanted to be here to watch. They're going to watch the live. When I told them about him, um, they were even more inspired. I think I think that, well, you, you continue, um, Chairman Jake. Well, I'm 23, but I, I don't really think that's as, uh, I, 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 I like that. It, uh, that could be an inspiring thing. Uh, but I, I don't, it's not as relevant to the, to For the sure. reality, you know, okay. um, yeah. the, the only thing that I wanted to ask is that we make a little bit of time to hear uh cat's story about uh, their, uh, the repression and the brutality that was uh, going on in Indianapolis. And also wanted to remind everybody that uh, <laughs> about the case that uh, Kwame wanted us to mention yes in indianapolis so mm -hmm. uh those are the only thing, two things i had to say but, uh yeah you know as far as the inspiration goes uh you know I, I i like that i can make that impact in the world i don't think it's all that relevant i think that anybody can make a revolutionary transformation they could become someone uh totally different they could become their opposite you know uh at any age you know so it's very <laughs> humbling to hear that <laughs> But go ahead. Uh, would Deputy Chairman Paul or Comrade Candy um, like to say anything? Or any other Brown Beret people who are in here? Honestly, there's a lot of people in this Zoom room. I'm not sure who's all who. <laughs> the um, case in Indianapolis, um, what year did that, was that case? It was 2022, wasn't it? 2022, was just, yeah. I don't think a lot of people know about it. It was April 25th, 2022. Um, his name is Herman Wheat, um, Her the Herman Wheatfield III. Um, mm -hmm. But if the Brown Berets or New Era Youngler comrades like to speak first, and then I can say a little bit about the Herman Wheatfield case. 
Thank you, comrade. I was going to wait until you were done, Kat. Um, but I was just going to say the reason why I added Two-Spirited to the list of folks that are being attacked right now is because we oftentimes, we throw around a lot of these acronyms, the LGBTQA2 plus community um, is taking a hit. But here in my community, it's more about, um, it's still based on that class, obviously, and a lot of um, academics and uh, students in college, unfortunately, are, are also kind of falling into this. We have a, this university here is on the Kilani lands of the Diné people. And so we have a huge population of unsheltered folks that don't even have the ability to express uh, if they're two-spirited or not, because the LGBTQA plus has taken over and it's predominantly white petty bourgeois students that are leading that movement here in this community. And so then they're not acknowledging that they're on stolen indigenous lands, that it's occupied lands, and the police are targeting them consistently, even with our policies, they created the the, you know, like you can't be homeless. So if you're in a tent mm. or you're you're caught sleeping at the bus station or anything, you're gonna be picked up and arrested. And then there's no repercussions even in the court system for them to even say, hey, guess what? I happen to be sleeping on my own lands because that's just invisible in the court system as it is. Mm -hmm. And then the people around them that are doing what I call an oppression Olympics, it's, you know, well, well, okay, we can't talk about trans folks and the, the violence that they're experiencing in this community because, again, it's still a lot of those trans folks that are predominantly white and petty bourgeois are also implementing the harm and violence towards our indigenous brothers and sisters on the streets. And then it becomes really confusing for folks to even get a platform, whether it's in city government council or even in some of the, um, you know, cause we do serve the people and things like that, but they come to us and they're just like, hey, how do we have our cases heard when we're two-spirited, which is radically different than the other parts of that acronym. And people aren't willing to take the time because, you know, us brown people are, have been invisible in so many ways that it pits. It's part of that manufactured disunity among us, right? And so then we have a hard time and then some of it plays into that Olympics around, well, who's being killed and why? And, and then I like what um, Chairman Chaka was talking about in terms of the, the co-optation, if you will, of certain uh, slogans of they've been devalued. They've been talked about, you know, like Black Lives Matter. And then I saw Natives Lives Matter and, and this and that. And then it was a way for the White Lives Matter movement to come out. And so then the police are here. They're sweeping all of that under the rug, obviously, because their valas, their bullets come first. And then they ask the questions and, and cover up later. And so that is always so huge because we're not taking time to really understand what it means. What if you're trans and two-spirited? These are, you know, things that like a lot of the petty bourgeois around here are not willing to even stop and talk about because they don't want complexity. So I was just throwing that in there and I'm interested to hear what everyone else is saying. All power to the people. All power to the people, all power to the people. If I could just interject, uh, comrades, this Chairman Shaka, First, let us be clear uh, uh, that we uphold the statement that was released in 1971 by Huey P. Newton 
on gays and the liberation movement and the women's liberation movement. We believe that we have to look at the trans community through the lens of class struggle, that those in power who are uh, advocating for the human rights of gays represent a class interest. They are part of the upper productive system and they, they want to do what they did with feminism. They wanna meld it close to the state. They wanna make sure that if there's any advocation, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, advocacy for uh, uh, the LBTQ, it be it be done within the lenses of Congress, and that they come up with rules and regulations that prescribe their humanity. And we say tactically, that's a good thing. Everybody should be afforded political, economic, social, and cultural rights. But when we make analysis of the LGBT community. We have to be clear that some of these folks are in the lap of the enemy. Some of these folks are, are our enemy. In fact, every time they organize some kind of event, the local political structures around LGBTQ, witness who's riding those uh, uh, cars that come through. They work for the corporate power structure. They work for the local political political structures. They are incentivized to come out there because of the dollar bill. So when we make an, uh, an analysis of the LGD, LGBTQ community, we have to be clear that we have some enemies there and we have some friends there. And we have to be able to unite the friends, isolate the right, and win over the uncertain. That's the best way in which we should deal with our brothers and sisters a part of the LGBT community. Because I'll be damned if I make a blanket statement saying I support the Contra brothers who happen to, and I, I know they don't, but happen to support LGBTQ. Or let's say on the other side, Warren Buffett say, well, you know, I support it. So let's have a, a, a press conference with the Black Panthers because we all agree that LGBTQ should be given some rights or given all their rights. I know those folks are a part of the rightist uh, pendulum. They are our enemies and class analysis, class struggle, class perspective, give us that uh, benefit that others don't have. And so I just wanted to be clear on that position, all power to the people. Let me just, um, let me just add, um, having being part of the queer community and also being part of the queer community in Detroit and Boston, um, I will say this. Um, as far as uh, the gentrification of Boston, for instance, which I watch happen, right now half of Boston is owned by the older white gay community. Um, the transgender community, um, I don't know about um, about uh, the community we were speaking of in the, it, just now. But uh, in Detroit, in Ohio, um, around the nation, um, I agree with you, the, the black cause has to come first, but uh, the transgender, transgender community has taken a huge hit. Um, I understand that um, when we talk about passers versus people who, the black transgender community, for instance, um, when we talk about passers versus non-passers in the transgender community, people do want to fit in, people end up assimilating. That is 
somewhat of a problem, but this is not across the board to the transgender community. Um, speaking of some myself as uh, my son is um, right now non-binary, he still goes by he, him. He is considering, um, he's considering uh, becoming trans. He is brown, but at the same time, him and his community, and this is anecdotal, of course, him and his community that he is with right now um, puts the black cause first. Um, so perhaps what you're seeing is something that is has to do with community to community as far as the poor in relation to that. Um, many transgender cannot even uh, hold down jobs or even get jobs that uh, are in, uh, in many communities around the uh, nation due to the fact that there's a huge stigma um, against them, especially once uh, the transgender humans who are going through um, gender affirming treatment. Um, so I'm just coming from this point of view. Um, I understand your experiences, uh, Chairman, and uh, I appreciate them. I'm just saying that um, for my anecdotal experience, many of the young transgender are, are actually seeing the black cause as the biggest issue right now. All power to the people, all power, I unite. So I wanted to say that, um, you know, women's rights, for example, uh, the transgender uh, gay liberation movement, um, we can go on and on. A lot of these uh, movements um we're supposed to have their rights afforded to them under the capitalist system. They're supposed to have their rights afforded to them through the capitalist revolution over through the Kings. Um, what we see here is there, there it's, it splits into two, like Tom said, you've got one side of this movement who is very clearly advocating for human rights, civil rights, right? That should have been afforded to them, right? And then that's where it ends, right? And then there is a sliver of this struggle that sees that that is not where it ends. In fact, economic rights are actually more important. They highlight more human dignity. They highlight more of your human civil rights uh, than, than you could ever get under a capitalist system. So I, I essentially... From what I'm, from what I see, uh, you know, I, we we have to support, we have to support the movement that talks about how your economic rights are are uh, an extension of your human rights. So your right to to collectively own uh, the means of life, for example, right? That's a human right, right? And it ties into your identity it ties into your place in the community so uh i guess what i'm saying here is that there there you know there's two portions of this of that movement uh and it's important that we find comrades uh you know the people who are in that revolutionized sliver of that movement to work with try to uphold their view on this and it would be excellent uh, if we had a, a, you know, somebody who formally represents an organization uh, 
from that sliver of that movement on this call today to talk about that. But, um, you know, because they're, they're brutalized by police all, all the time, you know. Uh, I mean, you could look back at the history, the decades and decades of, uh, you know, people in the trans community, gay people, uh, just openly being essentially lynched in, you know, all over the country. So, uh, you know, that's that's an aspect of this that we're going to miss out a, a little bit of. Uh, I mean, I've, I'm sure there's one or two people here who could do, do some justice to that claim, but nobody, I guess, here that's explicitly fighting for that community, you know. All right. Um, <clears throat> Zombie wanted to address something that uh, Chairman Shaka said, and then uh, the floor will belong to Kat after that. Yeah, I uh, very much appreciate the, the conversation about the intersexuality or sectionality um, that we need to definitely pay attention to. But I'd like to circle back around, if I could, to something that Chairman Shaka said, um, he talked a little bit about the, the militarization that we're seeing with police departments around the country and around the world. Um, and it, I think that this kind of um, hits close to home for me and my group because some of our members were um, acquainted with and had done actions with um, Tort um, Manuel in the past, um, the the uh, the indigenous um, Echo Warrior who was killed at Cop City. Um, so what we have been seeing, and we do work very closely with other eco groups. Um, what we have been seeing, as far as the reaction of the police to those groups is that they are escalating their military tactics and they're also escalating the way that they handle them afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that we're now up to like 16 of the protesters from Cop City have now been charged with domestic terrorism. It's 19. So, is it night? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the escalation, you know, and I know that in other countries, um, members of Just Stop Oil, um, Extinction Rebellion, many of them are being charged with these just out of bounds charges mm -hmm. that have more to do with with war crimes than you know than than protest. And I just kind of wanted to, to speak to that because Chairman Shaka had brought up the militarization. And I think that's something that, that people have been worried about for a couple of decades. I mean, from since 9-11, you know, mm -hmm. I can remember the people right after 9-11 that were so um, worried about the Patriot Act for this very reason. You know, and people were calling them conspiracy theorists. Mm -hmm. And now we've circled around and it's come to fruition. And I think it's something that that we really need to open our eyes and look at and just I don't know. I, I don't I don't even know what to say. It's just it's it's terrifying. 
it's terrifying. And that was what that was the first thing I thought of when um, Chairman Shaka brought up the militarization. So I appreciate you guys letting me share that. All power to the people. All power to the people. We appreciate you being on here. Um, so next will be Comrade Cat. We're going to start talking about uh, Herman Whitfield III. Um, and then behind her will be Deputy Chairman Paul and then Captain Africa. I apologize. How do I put my hand up? <laughs> I'll just put you, my hand up. You know, actually, I'm not, I'm not sure. I should, I should know that. It's down under reactions. I appreciate that. Thank uh, you. Yep. Sure I'll try is. and find it. Okay, let me see. Got it. Um, all right. Well, I just wanted to speak about um, IMPD specifically. Um, so it's kind of going off subject a little bit because it's more specific. Um, and that's the Indianapolis Metropolitan, Metropolitan Police Department. Um, first, I'll talk about Herman Whitfield III, and I'll put... Um, the link to the family's page that they have all their demands and updates on. Um, but he, his family called an ambulance for mental health crisis and IMPD showed up and killed him. And they are fighting for justice for him right now. Um, so that was, sorry, that was April 25th in 2022. Um, and um, there's a whole campaign going on that and volunteers are being taken. If anyone would like to join in with that, I'd like to say that, you know, IMPD just keeps getting more violent and they're funding the review boards, the incident reports, those aren't helping at all. I mean, you can go back to like 2015, 2017, where they failed to internally review nearly half of their officer involved shootings. Um, and they had about two or three years where it was a steady um, same numbers, but since then it has increased. Um, and then there's, you know, back in 2020 when Breonna Taylor and um, George Floyd, right before that on May 6th, um, IMPD, IMPD officer Digital Mercer um, murdered Drejan Reed, um, and that was after there was a police pursuit and then officer Mercer decided to um, go on his own and um, chase Trajan Reed. Um, and then eight hours later, not even two miles apart, they also killed a Mikhail Rose. Mm -hmm. um, and IMPD shows no accountability for these police brutality murders, not to their families, not to the known selves, not to the community. And I just think that is a very good thing to um, touch base on is how they've gotten more funding, they've gotten review boards, but yet they still show no accountability. I mean, their chief, Chief Taylor two weeks ago um, put out a statement about Tyree Ty, Ty Nichols and how that they shouldn't, um, Sorry, and my son is climbing shelves. <laughs> that you know, that should not be in the police force whatsoever, and that he is ashamed that these are police officers, but yet the one that's on his payroll, he shows no accountability for, and let lets them murder people. 
um, and it just keeps getting worse. So right now, um, IMPD is not showing accountability. They get violent, and you know that's the whole country right now. Um, but I'd like to touch base on the Herman Whitfield and um, that there is an open police brutality case right now. And if you'd like to get involved, I will share the link. Absolutely. Um, I will be copying that link and putting it in the Facebook comments as well. All right, so um, is that all or do you have more? Well, my son is choosing that to be all right now. So, ah, okay. Other can go. All right, that's fine. Um, Deputy Chairman Paul, that brings it to you. All right, all power to the people. So, all power, all power to the people, all power to the people. I first wanted to say, you know, I, I, I thank Tom, Comrade Tom, for his comments to, to bring into this conversation that. Um, you know, we, we in, in the U.S. tend to look at everything as a black and white struggle. Um, and a lot of other communities tend to get overlooked in this struggle and their contributions to the struggle. Um, and so I, I thank you, Comrade Tom, for bringing that out, that the, these issues also are reflected in, in the brown community. Um, and I say brown community because I don't really use the term Latino or Hispanic, because both of those terms were colonized terms given to us. Um, unfortunately, they have, you know, I believe Chairman Shaka said that sometimes people adapt to, to the situations. And so, you know, we've taken those terms Latino or Hispanic and tried to adapt to them and, and turn them into an identity to um, unify us. Unfortunately, um, unifying under a term that, that still uh, strips our identity away from us really isn't the, the best way to go about it. So when I talk, I, I typically talk about the Brown and Latino community. Um, and so when we look at police, you know, violence, the, the state sanctioned violence by the pigs, it's a, a, a violence that, that reflects on all of our communities. Um, and again, you know, we, we know and we see hashtag after hashtag. I'm, I, as we're speaking right now, we know that there's probably two new hashtags that we're gonna hear about tomorrow or in the next day. And it, it's something that we really need to pay attention to. And, and um, But when we speak, we have to speak about it and, and speak about it in a way that brings unity to, to, to people. And so when I always talk, I talk about, you know, the the same struggle being in the black and brown communities. Um, when, we, when we just focus on one demographic of it, and this is what media is really good at, you know, when Black Lives Matters came out, they said that they covered the brown indigenous communities. However, because of the, the way it's written, media was able to use that and twist that and distort that to a division amongst the people where people in the brown communities were like, well, that movement's for them, it's not for us. When damn well, we knew that the movement was for both, you know? And so we need, when we speak, we need to make sure that we speak on it 
so that there is no distorting by the media, distorting by the politicians and everybody else that wants to continue that divide between the black and brown community. We, we see it all the time. And here in Chicago, that, it, that shit runs rampant. You know, um, two years ago, we had a killing in Humboldt Park of a young Puerto Rican uh, male and his, and his girlfriend right mm -hmm. after the Puerto Rican festival. The killing was perpetrated. It was gang related or street tribe related because I don't like to use the term gang either because again, that's a term that was given by the system. Um, and we, if we know the history of gangs, we know that this history was based off of, you know, protection from the pigs, protection from white supremacists that would come in, burn our, our stores, torment our communities, beat our parents and stuff like that. So we have to remind ourselves of that. So we know that the, the killing was street tribe related, but we also know that the way the media portrayed it because it was a dark skinned brown person that could pass as if he was part of the black community, they were trying to say, well, if black lives matters, why are they killing us? And they, the media actually tried to perpetrate tensions in Humboldt Park between the black and brown community. We've seen it again in the George Floyd uprising where they sensationalized um, misunderstandings that happened in Little Village, trying to make it sound like the brown gangs, like the Latin Kings and the, the two six and stuff like that were intentionally targeting people from the black community. And then they were amping people up in the black community to respond in such with violence towards the brown community. So when we talk, we have to make sure that we don't, you know, perpetuate the, the, the concepts of it's only a black and white issue. Um, we need to make sure that we talk about it as an us issue. And it's, it, you know, it then extends onto a class issue as well, um, because we know that just as many people in the black and brown community that are killed, we may know names 10 times out of, out of 10, we know the names of the people in the black community that are killed in the brown community for every 15, 20 names that we have in the black community, we may get one. And then in the white community, in the poor white community, we may get zero. I don't think off the top of our head, we may be able to name someone in the white community that was killed for the same reasons it, that someone in the black or brown community was killed. And so we need to really talk about that because what ends up happening is we just perpetuate the hate within our groups. And then, you know, we become like that echo chamber of, oh, you know, everybody in this community is like that. So we don't do this with them. We don't, we don't move or we become oppressors of our own, right? And instead of fighting oppression, we fight it, but we're also oppressing other people in other communities. And, and that is where we need to really start drawing the line because that makes us no better than the pig, no, matter, no better than the state-sanctioned violence that is already perpetuated by the system that we live in. Um, I do also want to thank Chairman Shaka for his mention of Don Pedro and, and the independence movement in, in, um, in Puerto Rico. Um, there's a quote by a, a independent, um, independista that was um, Clemente Soto Velez. And he said, and, and I'll paraphrase it a little bit, but he was talking about the independence of Puerto Rico depends on the number of bullets in the pig's belt. 
Well, we could extend that to the now nowadays and say our independence, the independence of the people here depends on the number of clips in, or number of bullets in the pig's clip, you know? And when we start to look at it, we know that um, we outnumber the pigs. We know that we outnumber, even if they were to pull in the military and the national guard, we know that an educated people will outnumber the masses uh, of, you know, oppressors. And so I, that, that, that was just some of the stuff that was going on in my mind as we were talking. Um, I will share something here in Chicago. Uh, I know we opened up also with, with statistics on, on police or pig sanctioned killings. And, and these are, I call them sanctioned killings because they don't have no repercussions. They don't face charges. Um, here in Chicago, the Chicago Police Department has a billboard that has a pig in a casket being carried out by fellow pigs and it says enough is enough and the blatant audacity to put up a billboard like that in black and brown communities when 2022 saw the highest rate of murders by the pigs is just shocking and it, it and it really shows that they really don't give a fuck about any of us any of us on this call are and anybody listening to us are an easy target for them and they don't care, but let, let a pig fall and now enough is enough. And that, that really just pisses me off every time I see that, that mm -hmm. billboard and it's purposely only in black and brown communities. I have not seen it in any prominent affluent neighborhoods here in Chicago, but if you go to the hood, you see that bullshit ass billboard up there mm -hmm. um, in our face daily. And it's just, mm -hmm. it's, it's them taunting us because they know that they will continue to kill us, but yet they want us to, to feel sympathy for them. And we've seen it on social media as well with, you know, how many times have we gone onto social media and we see a, 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 either a black or brown pig on, on social media trying to humanize themselves and say, you know, not all of us are bad. We're, you know, we represent the community. Bullshit, you don't represent the community. And excuse my language, you know, if I'm swearing too much, but we know that you don't represent the community. The moment you put on that badge, you stop representing the community. You stop speaking for the community. And you could say that there's good good pigs, but let's be honest, until they start fucking attacking their own pigs, they, they are just as guilty every time a trigger is pulled. Every cop is just as guilty because they knew that he would pull the trigger or that she would pull the trigger eventually. They knew that they would beat the shit out of somebody and kill them and yet they did not do anything. So there are no good cops in my eyes. And that's all I'll say. All power to the people. Uh, all Captain power to the people. All uh, power to the people. All power to the people. All um, power. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt, but who's next? <laughs> uh, Captain, <laughs> Captain Africa is next. And then you and then Tom. Thank you. Hey, all power to the people. Um, I'm about to say some old all power stuff. to the people. Can y'all hear me clearly? Yeah. Yeah. Hey. Um, now what I'm about to say, I guess ties into everything, even what the brother just said, the comrade just said just now. Um like one of the history books that I love the most is um CLR James, the Black Jacobin. Like the reason why I love that book is like it explains to you in there what revolution really is 
Which I, book like is we, it, Comrade? C.L.R. James, The Black Jacobins. It's about it's about the Haitian Revolution, mm -hmm. like how they actually okay. won the revolution. And there's a quote in there, I mean, um, by Toussaint, and he's saying like Toussaint knew, like he knew the people he was fighting. He never had the illusion that they conferred any. No, no, no. Let me go back. Um, it is Toussaint's supreme merit that while he saw European civilization as valuable and necessary thing and strove to lay his foundation upon never had the illusion that it conferred any moral superiority. That's the institution that we're dealing with now. He knew French, British, and Spanish imperialists for the insatiable gangsters that they were. That's the society that we're in now, the government that we're in headed by Biden. That there's no oath too sacred for them to break. No crime, deception, treachery, cruelty, destruction of human life and property which they would not commit against those who could not defend themselves, which is us, because we don't have no weapons. So it's like, I'm listening and we come at this from, from identity politics. It's like, at some point, those identities that they give us, that they ascribe on us, is how they separate us. And then at some point as an American, growing up, living in the system, you start to see how if you're a woman, if you're gay, if you're black, if you're a Latino, you start to see how the system oppresses you in your own unique way. And then you start to fight from that, from that space, you start to fight. And then and we forget who the enemy is, who we fighting against. These savages that have been here for hundreds and thousands of years, that um, these elites, this oligarchs, that this money has continued to stay in their hands. And we forget that and we go in our corner and say we fighting whatever. And we we reactionary reactionary because that's how we've been socialized to be from birth. From the first time you came out your mother, you started understanding your, your mother, your parents will ever socialize you. The school you went to, the system you're part of, they made you that person that you are. Then now you try to change that. And you can't change it overnight. You become um react reactionary and you reflect back to it. As Panthers, we live by the 10-point program. And last week, I mean, I'm doing a quick, um, what you call it right here? I don't know what, what's the term they use. But when you're talking about another show and another show. But I, well, um, last week, we talked about um, about imperialism. And we talked about housing. We went through the list. And number four, we want decent housing fit for, for the shelter of human beings. That's number four, the 10-point program. We believe that if the landlords will not give decent housing to our black and oppressed communities, then the housing and the land should be made into cooperative so that our community with the government aid can build and make decent housing for its people. This government hates us. They don't care about us. If we want to save ourselves, we need to do cooperative. We need to come together as a group and build institutions to sustain ourselves. I heard the conversation earlier about how many people do we need for us to do anything like 3%, 10%. You need to, we need to build institutions. Whatever small percentage of us is around, we have to build institutions with institutional memory to carry on what we say to the next generation and be like a cooperative. That means all of us here on this live stream own the house own the building, 
own whatever it is. We're all getting a piece of that pie. Why would you go to the government and ask them for anything? They have never kept their word. The government is strategically put in place to oppress you. That is why they wrote their constitution. That is why it is in place. So how do you think, like, we, we actually think in our mind, the struggle is going to win over their institution. How do you win over all the judges all around the country? How do you win institutions that they have erected for hundreds and thousands of years? No. I'm a sociologist by trade. I didn't go to school to make money. I went and, I went and picked a dumb, a dumb, what you call it, a dumb major. Like, like, that's how the world look at it. Sociology, oh my God, you're going to be a sociologist, you're going to be a political scientist, you're not going to make no money. So that's how people looked at it. But I picked sociology to understand how society is constructed and maintained. And if you take nothing away from what I am saying, institution building is what our purpose is, because that is how they control our lives. So if we wake up tomorrow, we send our kids to their schools, we send our schools to their entertainment mediums, our kids are going to turn out and be what they want them to be. But if we organize and we come together and we understand our identity, our ascribe um, identity that they put on us, it's not our issue. But that imperialist, that black mayor, that black councilman, those black teachers, those white, those Spanish, all these people in our communities, they work for the system that's oppressing them. So just because they look like me, they sound like me, they say collectors collectors like, right on, power to the people. That don't fucking mean you with me. It means you're co-opting my struggle to oppress me from the space that you're in, that the white supremacy or the social structure, this oligarchy has given you. So we want to fight back. What the chairman teaches us, Chairman Takadu, that's my chairman of our party. What he teaches us in our community is to build dual contending powers. Build your school. I don't care if it takes you 10, 15 years, you by yourself. You have to build that school that teaches something different. And from that institution, you're going to produce minds that you can reason with. I mean, like, I don't want to go on forever, but this is a great discussion. But most of the time, when I go to this place and we have this discussion, we think we got to go get policies. Ain't no fucking policy going to liberate any one of us. I mean, so even, like, whatever they do in Congress, whatever they do in any of those places has nothing to do with our liberation. Our liberation is going to come from us. And yeah, it's important that you young Jake, real rap, because, like, you can talk to people, your generation, you understand how to speak to them different than me. I'm, I'm in my 40s, I'm 43. So it's like how I talk and how I, the music that they listen to, the shit they do, I look at them like they're retarded, like they're stupid. I mean, and I don't even want to have a conversation with them. But like, I'm being 100 here. But you, from your space, like you can have that conversation with them and it's not too foreign. I mean, because like, yo, <laughs> I believe in building institutions. That's all I care about. But your age is important. I always Fred Hampton. He's still living on till this day. I mean, so it's like, yo, when I was younger, I used to want to be smart. I wanted to be the smartest person in the room. Nah, you hold on to that smartness. Put that smartness on your head as a crack. Because it's, it's work, it's study. You learned that. It didn't come from nowhere. You wasn't born knowing the stuff you know. You did the work to learn that stuff. Don't be, don't be like, nah, it's it's on um, what you call it. It's not the main thing. It is the thing. It is the thing. That you is the thing. And being able to understand all these things and not wait till you're like you're 30 in your 40s 
to understand them. And then like 10 years, 12 years later, it's almost too late for you to really do anything about it. Like you in your 20s, you got your whole life ahead of you. You got a lot of time to put these institutions together. We put these institutions together, you got to manage it, and then pass them on. I mean, real talk, so that youth is big, man. And what we're doing here is big. I want everybody to understand, you could be doing anything. But we're sitting here talking about how we actually fix our communities. And how we fix them is by building institutions. That's what the, the book said. That's dialectic materialism. And our enemy is imperialism. We're not our enemy. Ain't no gay person my enemy. Ain't no Spanish person my enemy. Ain't no white person. I don't even care. Yo, right now, all the white people in the world, all the white men in the world could be like, yo, we're tired of um, white supremacy. Fuck that. We don't want white supremacy no more. It's still going to be white supremacy tomorrow because the institutions are here to enforce it. So it doesn't matter what they think. I don't care what people think. We must build our own institution. I said all power to the people. All power to the people. Power to the people. All power to the people. All, all power, power to, to the, the people. people. All power. Um, my next. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Wow. Um, comrade, uh, comrade Africa. Um, wow. Uh, agreed. Uh, I mean, you said a lot of stuff there that I just, uh, um, everything, everything you said was just amazing. Um, I just wanted to add, um, as far as militarization of police, just remember that um, a lot of this is corporate backed. A lot of it is, um, including the $90 million facility in Atlanta. Um, it's, uh, in, on backing on milita militarization for the past decade, um, PDs across uh, the United States have been doing, including NYPD, California PD, uh, Atlanta PD, uh, Georgia PD. We're seeing precincts across across America going, exchanging with um, the uh, um, Israeli, uh, the settler police in Israel, um, and they're doing exchange programs, um, basically to teach each other how to tactically uh, go after marginalized communities. Um, the police, one thing about police investigating themselves that Kat had mentioned, um, in many other countries, including the UK, police, when there's police involved with a shooting or a beating, they do not investigate themselves. There's always an independent investigator that is not affiliated with police. In this country, we see press releases from police as actual research articles, they are not. Police handle all the evidence, including the police reports. How can we expect to have any confidence in what they have to say when they're trying to protect themselves at all times? Also, um, remember when media is trying to um, divide us, all of media is owned by the 1%, all mainstream media. So if you're looking for truth in media, that will not come from mainstream media at all. Um, in fact, media is created to divide people. It's drama, it sells, um, and it's the 1% that owns the media. Um, as far as, um, okay, as far as the good cop issue, let me say this, any good cop, any cops who go in with the intent to be good or to change the system, the ones who remain good are weeded out, are beaten up, are basically forced to leave the to leave any police type of system 
and or if they don't leave, if they speak out, they're higher level lieutenants or captains, they're charged with offenses, um, planted evidence on them, they're brought to, they're basically imprisoned. So, and we have more than numerous cases of that. And also, as far as increased violence in police, let me say this, police, as, as, as many know in the uh, Black American community, police go back to enslavement. Police, as far as 1972, were still hanging black, young Black um, humans from trees. We're talking about generationally, this is not going to change in the police system. It is a huge system. Um, and uh, so basically, good cops, there are no good cops anymore, if there ever was. They're all been weeded out. They've all been, or they've assimilated into the uh, police system. Um, I think that's all I have to say. And I think I said it pretty quickly, <laughs> but that's about it. I, I, I mean, Comrade Africa, wow. Um, and no, it's I, I want to say something about the, the cops too. Um, <laughs> even in that book that CLR James wrote in 1938, the, the first thing he said that the, um, the invaders needed when they came into our Navy was police. <laughs> They needed to have police to be able to keep order. Like, that's their duty, period. Like, there's no need to say they're good cops, they're bad cops. You're all pigs of pigs. A pig is a pig. Like, that's period. When you hear somebody say, oh, good, um, there's some good cops, that's their narrative that they're trying to put on us for us to buy into that group of shit. You know, like, when the Tyree Nichols thing happened, when they killed them, you know, they killed, like, the next day, two days, or whatever, they fired all those police officers. Yo, you know why they fired all those police officers? Yo, the head police officer, the black woman that was the chief, yo, she came from another department where this stuff already happened already. And she didn't want the heat. So she tried to get rid of this as soon as she can. She had another unit called the Scorpion Unit or whatever unit they had in Atlanta. She got fired and she left and she went to Mississippi and started this again. She's a pig. Pigs do what pigs do. And they hired them, they, they promote them. Because they're pigs. They serve their masters. They're no good cops, none of that. And when we say abolish the police, you, know, you have to visualize it before you can understand it. You know, we live in a community. If we say we need to put cooperative in our community, where the community comes together to create the, um, the um, cooperative, which they all get resources from. They all get a resource from that business, the house, whatever building that they have. They're all earning from it. Why do I need to steal from my own business? Why do I need police in the community if I'm not poor, if I'm not starving, if I don't have to worry about clothes, where I'm going to eat tomorrow? If you if you are making less than $80,000 in North New Jersey, you cannot get renting right now. You need to make more than that. This is what the real estate people are saying. So it's like, this is their form, their way of gentrifying the community. Because they're going to tell you, the minute you call them up, you say, look, I'm, I'm trying to get an apartment. They're going to say, how much do you think? Send us your taxes, whatever. And then they'll call you back. Well, um, we don't have no place for you. They may not even tell you you don't make enough. But according to their quota, them trying to gentrify and change that society, they're not allowing people that's not making a certain amount to live here. Because they know the income of the people that live here is about 30 to 35. So we're going to get rid of these people by not allowing them to get home. Like, there's nobody talking about that when they talk about housing. 
Then I talk about this little bit, or the landlord forcibly kicking people out illegally, going like putting stuff on their door and illegally getting security to come kick them out instead of the sheriff department. You don't hear none of that stuff. You see, like when you work on the front line for real activists, when you say you try to put this stuff, like put it to practice, these are the people that you speak to in these communities and you hear these stories of how they kicked out their homes. And in no community that we've been to, that we've gone to, that we spoke to around the world, nobody said it like the police. Everybody says they hate the police. I don't care what community you go to. You want, like, England, go to France, go wherever. They all hate the police because the police are here to protect one class of people. And they're all pigs. And all the people that control the institution, because they may have control the police, all these people, whether they're black, they're gay. What, what's her name? She's Lightfoot in Chicago. She's black. She's gay. She knocked out two boxes. But what is going on over there? People still getting lynched. People still in the streets. Nothing has changed. And like it goes back to the identity politics. We got to walk away from identity politics and go into something that's dialectic, that's dialectic, that's scientific. Because we have all the evidence here. We have the 10-point plan. We have everything here to teach us who our enemy is and who we're fighting. And we need to follow that. Because it seems to me like a lot of time, not too guys here. But a lot of times when I'm watching stuff, people say they read a book, they did this, but they don't follow what the book is saying. The book is telling you, don't trust this system. Don't trust this government. Anything they say is a lie. There are no policies that's going to liberate you. These are all in books. And we ignore them and we say like, yo, if we change maybe one or two politicians. If we do local politics, local politics is just as corrupt as national or federal. So it's like, it's pointless. Build our own institutions and we start to change things in our communities. Whatever community that you guys are at, we come there and we assist. You come here and you assist. We build a network connected with each other. This is how you build a revolution. This is how you change how things are. So if we, if we have a cooperative now, and then like in 20, 20 years, our children take it over. That is a revolution. You have basically changed the material conditions of the people in that space. Holding mm -hmm. none of this other stuff will do any of that. I'm not saying that no more because I talk too much. I'm, I'm going on. Um, I just want to say something real quick before I pass it to uh, Chairman Jake. But there was uh, last week, I think it was, a situation in Providence, Rhode Island, where a landlord showed up at a duplex or whatever to illegally evict a tenant. And the tenant thought that they were being home invaded and fucking shot the landlord. And now the state of Rhode Island is pushing charges on the tenant. Um, and that's a liberal state right there. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to say notice in that situation that you just you just gave us. Right. If in the context of a, a homeowner. Right. Say that person owned their home right? And this person's knocking on their door and they shoot them, right? Or trying to get in, gain entry to their home and they shoot them. In many states, the castle doctrine applies. And in fact, you can use that as a defense, uh, you know, to get off on, a, on the charge of, you know, murder, essentially. So the only distinguishing feature in that is the fact that there are property rights involved, right? So, and it, this is what makes class crime 
this is what makes class warfare, right? It was a, the, the, Tom was talking about class war when he was uh, in here a few minutes ago. That's what he's referring to, right? This property distinction, right? Where we have this small, you know, one, two percent of the population who owns 99, 98% of the infrastructure, right? Mm -hmm. They get to make the laws and they get to hold people accountable for misuse of that property, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not the other way around, even though it is all of society that maintains, uses, and consumes things based on uh, the existence of that infrastructure. So, you know, when some when a when a child starves to death, when a child is dehydrated, uh, when a child is malnourished, uh, when a when a man is brutalized by the police, when you know, I go on and on and on. All the different ails in society. You have an existent uh, a property uh, existence of property relations like this. It is uh, the the victims are necessarily the people, and the perpetrators are necessarily the owners. So, um, you you know, it, it, that is only that that case that you just brought up is that's only uh, it, it's only I mean it's egregious to us, right? But in in a socialist system in a in a communist system that would have been completely justified. So, you know, it, it would be the law. You can't just break into somebody's domicile and try to, you know, do whatever you're going to do there. So, but hitting home even deeper on what Africa said here, he was talking about building dual power in the community. And on the last uh, uh, podcast that we had here, that was something that I had, I hit home on. What mm -hmm. I didn't, go in depth on was the mass line and that's something that i wanted to bring up here too we talk about building the dual power building the infrastructures your liberation school building your food program build you know it, it to the point where you get that to be that that's no no longer a food program it's no longer a table on the street it's a supply depot in the community we got everything you need in here you come and get it and it gets to the point where it's no longer a cooperative system it's almost like an anthill it's fully autonomous right Think people just go out into society, get the resources they need, bring it to a central location and equally distribute it. That's the kind of thing that we're trying to get to, right? Knowing, so even, even with that in mind, the goal of building the institutions, it's not just one step to, you know, to doing that. You don't just take your table out. You have to apply a method to doing that. It's called the mass line. This is where you go into the community, you concentrate the ideas of the people there, Obviously, you need to have professionals who are dedicated to this. They have to interpret these things dialectically. They have to use dialectical materialism to understand these conditions that you're going to get from the people. You condense that into a program, right? You figure out what's right. You figure out what's incorrect or what is partially correct. And you develop a program and present that to the people. And a program could be, for example, the 10-point program, right? And that is a, almost a universal program, right? The Black Panthers, the original Black Panthers were, were uh, uh, honestly like uh, visionary, really. They were almost prophetic in their ability to, to synthesize the universal problems within the community. And that's why you see all of, and it's not even an explicitly, I mean, partially, but it's not even an explicitly anti-capitalist program. 
the 10 point the original 10 point program is a, is a, almost socially democratic these are things that should have been afforded to you under the capitalist system these are the things that the capitalist revolutionaries promised but never fulfilled right because of the profit motive so anyway you 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 got your program now right if it's right you can apply it right it's going to transform over time as the people's needs change. So you have to keep, you have to recycle, you do the mass line all over again, right? If it's wrong, you also go back over again, right? So it's this continuous cycle that we apply on the ground as organizers, right? I'm trying to tell people who are watching this how to actually build a survival program right now. Because I can talk about, okay, you set your table up on the corner, right? But what if it turns out that people don't need food, right? It's unlikely right? The poor community we're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. their, their needs are almost universal, right? But it may not be the case that you need to have bottled water, right? You may not live, you know, if you're not in Flint, Michigan, or some other place where, you know, the water is contaminated, that may not be the first thing you start with, right? So mm -hmm. figuring out what's primary, figuring out what's secondary, the lists of people's needs, and you find that if you go door to door, that people have common needs and they don't realize it. But once you show them that, hey, I've surveyed 95% of the people in this neighborhood and they all agree on this specific issue, right? They realize there is a common threat, right? Mm -hmm. And some people may be out in the community spontaneously trying to solve these things, right? Maybe there's a homeless problem, right? Okay, I'm gonna let this homeless man, I, I always walk past, I'm gonna let him stay a couple of weeks in my house because he can't get to the shelter or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. That happens all the time, right? Mm -hmm. People in the community doing these things spontaneously, but if these people knew each other and they had a common knowledge, the common thread, the survey done by professionals in the community, right? Mm -hmm. Presented with the program that they all agree with can solve the issue. They can be organized towards solving that issue. And they can be organized toward building an institution that is permanent in the community, that is not owned by another system, it's an alternative system. And at some point, you will need governance. At some point, you will need defense, right? And so that is the foundation for revolutionary conditions. When you have an alternative system that is in competition with the existing system. So, to get there, you need to apply the mass line. So I wanted to present that as well. Absolutely. Um, next we'll do Tom since he's uh, he made it back. And uh, then it'll be Deputy Chairman Paul. Yeah, I apologize. I'm having a little problems with the computer here crashing on me. Uh, the, the basic of every every strategy is answering the question, who's our friends, who's our enemies? And I think we all agree on who our friends are as far as the, the various ethnic groups and minority groups, uh, gay people, so forth. Uh, on the enemies, we're not so clear. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that we have two fascist parties in America. And the Democratic Party is the original fascist party. The, the, the Republicans just made a right flank on them with the, the Nixon uh, Southern campaign. 
they are never going to defund the police. They are never, they are never going to uh, ease up uh, on uh, oppressing the people. Their job as, as the left flank of the, the fascists is to keep sucking people in uh, with false promises, to keep them in the system, keep them voting, and keep them from building their own power base. We have to stop playing that game. We have to forget about changing the Democratic Party because it's never going to change. From the Democratic National Committee on down, it's a fascist organization. And it's controlled by the, the, the less than 1% of the bourgeoisie that are the ruling class. We have to, like, like Jake was pointing out, build our own institutions, build our own base of power from the grassroots up. And only when we have developed enough strength from doing that will we be in a position to challenge them for the whole bag of peanuts. I just, that's what I wanted to say. Can I just say one thing that piggybacks on what Tom, uh, Comrade Tom just said? Um, as far as um, two-party system, it's an oligarchy for sure. It's basically one party. And um, I do tend to separate them a little bit um, as far as Republican Party is fascist. Um, I think maybe by a sliver, the Democratic Party is better just by a sliver. But I will say this, um, when we're talking about um, the Democratic Party, let me ask you this uh, to all of you. What, first of all, number one, why is the consensus in America still pro-cop 55%? Why does the Democratic Party who labels himself as the People's Party continue to fund police? Um, even though they have promised to divest police, um, to create community programs like Comrade Jake has mentioned, the Democratic Party has said that they would do this over and over again. Why do you think they are not doing that at all? And these are just questions that I got from messages on Facebook um, specifically. Can I try to answer that briefly? Because you've asked the question in a different form to Shaka, and I, I have to give just directly it's because they're trying to protect property. 55% of Americans have a stake in the system. Even people who are on the lower rungs of that middle income, right, have stocks. They have property, real property that they're invested in. And they believe that criminals are a racial category. They don't see it as a class category. And so what you're getting is 55% of Americans have this view that they need cops in their community to protect them because they see no alternative, especially an easy alternative, right? And that's the work that we have to do, right? But they see no alternative. And the Democrats and Republicans see that and come from that perspective. And that is what they are catering to. They will talk 
you know, to the social justice movement. They'll talk to the revolutionaries out of one side of their mouth just to placate them, to duel their revolutionary edge, right? Mm -hmm. And out of the other mouth, assure the rest of the people that, hey, we're not doing what these people want. We're going to make sure that you got cops in your community. We know what happens when you don't have cops in your community. Wink, wink. This is the kind of, uh, I, I mean, it's, in one sense, it's completely racially charged, right? And in another sense, it's actually a lie. You have many alternatives, right? In fact, 95% of policing right now, due to the current digital technologies that we have, right, are obsolete. You don't need traffic cops. You have enough infrastructure to see every license plate on every street in the country. You don't need them. You don't need a cop to go to somebody's door to give them a ticket if they got your license plate running a red light. Mm -hmm. You know why? Because you have a mail system. You don't, and, and, and if you got rid of the traffic cop, you've already gotten rid of like half of policing, half of the cops, right? And this is just one, one way to do it. Now, obviously that doesn't get to the root of the matter. Now people talk about abolition all the time, but what they, and this is the part that they missed in, when George Floyd protests happened, right? Uh, the George Floyd rebellion. The thing they missed was the connection to class, right? Everybody wanted to talk about how we need to reform the cops. We need, and as some people went as far as we got to abolish the police, right? Without recognizing that we live in a capitalist society, right? A state society, right? And a state society necessitates groups of armed men who go out and defend that society. It necessitates prisons. It necessitates a, a whole system, an infrastructure of people, right? Who can go out and enforce that system. And so if we have a, a set of property relationships that we have to maintain, right? And we have cops in that system and the property relations that we are maintaining only benefit one, two percent of the entire population, right? Then the cops are only ever going to work in favor of one to two percent of the population, right? Mm -hmm. And furthermore, if you want to do abolish policing wholesale, you have to abolish the state. Mm -hmm. And so the question becomes, how do you even get there? Right? And mm -hmm. as far as we know, right, since the primitive communal era, it has not happened. The state has existed in some form. It is a proto form or, you know, in the modern nation state form, it has always existed. And there has always been these groups of men who go around and defend that arrangement of property. So that is the most succinct, direct way that I can answer that. And, you know, uh, I hope that does its injustice. So it was great. <laughs> All power to the people. Um, I want to I want to thank uh, Deputy Chairman Paul for being as uh, as patient as he's been. He's had his hand up for a while. No problem. I'm, all great points, and and um, I mean, I'll add on to what Jake is saying. And people that have heard me speak before will will know that I take this stance of violence and 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 death is a commodity in our communities. So of course they're going to say they they will want to defund and everything else, but when you look at it, the cops have no um, 
obligation to reduce crime in the community. It's like, if they reduced crime, they work themselves out of a job, right? So they're gonna always want that crime. No matter what they say, they're not there to, to protect anything, not even property to a point because crime in this essence pays for them. They get their overtime. During, during uh, the, uh, an event in, in Humble Park, we watched the cops instigate a fight between two street tribes um, because at that point, up until that point, there was very little um, violence or tensions within the festival. But once they saw the opportunity, we're talking maybe about 40 to 60 um, uniformed cops standing on a corner, watching two street tribes go at it, directing them into a crowd of women and children. And then that's when they decided to attack when they were intermixed with the women and children on, at the event. And at that point, it was myself and my field marshal that put ourselves in between the women and children and the two street tribes and the cops fighting, right? And they do this because they know next year when, when it comes time to run this festival again, they're guaranteed overtime. They're guaranteed that money. Same thing with the politicians. The politicians will sit here and tell us they want to reduce crime. They want to, you know, fix houselessness and all, all these other issues that, that are, are violence to the people. You know, hunger is violence to the people. Miseducation is violence to the people. All of these things, they will say that they want to fix, but they know if they fix it, they don't got a platform to stand on next, next mm -hmm. term. So they're going to sprinkle a little bit, make it look like they're, they're doing something, say the same things that they want, they know people want to hear. And then they use that fear mongering. I just saw a post from a, a politician running for alderman who I've had a conversation with and he was like, yeah, you know, I, I, I don't believe, I think we should defund the police to a point, right? He wasn't fully at defund, but he was like, I think we should defund the police. His campaign right now is calling the people that want to defund the police extremists. So I'm, I'm wondering what he, if, if they're the extremists, what about the abolish the police minded people? What, I guess they would probably be labeled as terrorists. And when I say they, that would include me because I, I believe we should abolish the police. So if he's, and, and this is the fear mongering that they use and we see it all the time. And we know the first thing like, Every genocide that I have studied in history starts with media. And, and I, I know we, we, we've talked about the system and we know that this system isn't broken because the system is working perfect for the way that it was built. The people that built it, the mindset and the ideology of the people that built it and who was considered human at that point when it was built, it's built perfectly working for that set of people. Everybody else was a second afterthought if that at all, and it was scraps that we were given. We were never given full rights. We were always just given scraps off the plate of the 1% and then we fight for them. And we, we talk about this in, in the, the community as well. For the brown community to win, the black community has to lose something. For the black community to win, the brown community has to lose something. The one community that's not losing anything is the affluent community that already has everything. They still get their money and that never gets touched. And I know we talked about, uh, Comrade Tom also talked about the Democrats and, and the Republicans and 
and I don't fuck with either. Both of them have taken time in history to lynch us publicly and then condone the lynching privately, you know? And that will continue to happen. And, and it, I hate the conversation I have to have with people because unfortunately the black and brown community is taught that the Democrats are our savior. But only what, maybe about 50 years, 60 years ago, they were hosting the Democratic convention with the KKK. But we don't mm -hmm. want to talk about that. We don't want to acknowledge that because then who do we vote for? The Republicans who right now are taking, holding the, the lynching ropes for us? So no, you know, this system, like I said, is working the way that it was built. And until we demolish and tear down the system altogether, no reform, no rebuilding, no, you know, oh, we, you know, let's get more black and brown people in, in positions of power because all they do is become the same fucking oppressor that they were fighting against. You know, they get a little bit of power and next thing you know, everything that they stood for was just to get the votes and then they turn on the people. So until we tear down everything from scratch, we're not going to get the, the liberation we want. And, you know, what I'm a, probably going to say is, is going to cause problems. But, you know, they, they say that, you know, we see that, that the white supremacy groups are, are forming militias. But, you know, with the proper political education, our street tribes could be our militia. And all we power know, to the people. All power to the people. All power to the people. All power to I'm the people. That, that. All power to the people. Power to the people. Um, I guess the next person to have their hand up would be Jake. And then Tom. And then does anybody else want to speak after that? Just, uh, you know, put your hand up. I just want to say that, you know, there's a lack of seriousness. Uh, nationwide toward the idea of revolution. You can go to any, uh, you know, quote unquote, revolutionary circle, protest, program, whatever it is, almost any, any of them in the country. And uh, people just have a real lack of an understanding of what this is going to take. They don't understand uh, a large by and large. And this, some of this is a privileged position. Some of this is a fear of safety. Some of this is a lack of dedication. Uh, there's a lot of different tendencies that go into it, but uh, uh, to be being afraid of violence. I mean, violence is, is not something to be afraid of. Violence is a tool. Violence has always been a tool, right? As long as, like I said earlier, states, societies necessitate groups of armed people, right? Groups of armed people necessarily get into violent struggles in order to maintain that system. So these are things that just happen, okay? It's like the, it's like a, uh, the law of gravity, right? Violence happens, right? It's a violent universe, it's just what happens. So coming to grips with that is important, right? Accepting a certain degree of professionalism, right? Toward this. If you're going to be serious about it, accepting all of it, the full degree of it. So uh, the point that I want to make here is that, you know, we have to look at, we have to take the position of, okay, are we going to be professional about this, right? Or are we not, right? And if we're not, you may as, you may as well just go be voting for the Democrats or Republicans. 
you may as well just go engage in the spontaneous acts of violence, pat yourself or spontaneous acts of uh, solidarity and uh, pat yourself on the back. You know what I mean? You know, make yourself feel good. That's, I mean, because that's as far as it's going to go. And that's all, it's all it's gone to, you know, so far, you know, occasional riot, right? Occasional mass uprising of millions of people, but it doesn't go anywhere. And we got to think about when did it go somewhere in other parts of the world, right? Mm -hmm. China, right? It went somewhere in Vietnam. It went somewhere in Russia, right? And go on, half the world, you know? Uh, and there are universals that applied in those situations. A lot of it, most of it was particular, right? They had some particular thing, for example, in uh, China, they had a certain amount of peasants and they were far more numerous than they were compared to proletarian industrial workers, right? Uh, Maybe different in a different part of the world, you know? Uh, and there's, there's a particular there, right? But there are certain things that are universal, right? For example, what's your method of actually getting the ideas of these people, right? Concentrating them, coming up with a program, right? Programs are not going to be identical in every part of the world. They're not going to be identical in every state in the U.S., right? Given a serious situation, right? But the point is, is that we have, we're, we, we're taking we're taking, we're drawing a line of demarcation between utopians and scientific, scientific people, right? Scientists and utopians, as far as Marxism goes, as far as, uh, you know, are we dialectical materialists, right? Or are we some form of anarchists, are we dialectical idealists or uh, some other, some other philosophical position? Um, and these are these are questions that we have to, on the one hand, get people who are trying to have a revolution thinking about. They need to understand the terminology here, right? And we have to have a consensus on this, right? And if not a consensus, we have to have real social practice playing out on the ground. That is a scientific method. We can say, okay, they tried this, this, practice over here and we tried this practice over here it turned out we were wrong right and then consolidate and go with that you know what i mean but it, some of this comes down to, to the networking too you know some people on here were talking about how we got to get people in connection with each other a lot of groups don't know that you know there's people who are wanting to be professional you know just a couple cities over you know they don't even know each other that needs to, we need to get these connections built that's that's you know before we even get to this, these big questions for the movement, but you know, there's a lack of professionalism, and I think that really needs to get rem remedied here to solve this, these issues of police brutality, these issues of capitalism, poverty, all these different contradictions. So, uh, I just thought I'd put that put that out there. All power to the people. Um, so we've got Tom, and then Kama, and then Zombie. Um, it's we're going on two and a half hours now. So if anybody else, this will probably be the last like, you know, run through of uh, people. If anybody else has anything that they want to say before we wrap up, uh, now would be the time to put your hand up. With that being said, um, go ahead, Tom. Uh, I'll be brief. I, I saw a, a good line on uh, 
Facebook not too long ago said uh, uh, voting is the adult version of writing a letter to Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's true. And we have to stop looking to the electoral system as anything other than you know mutual masturbation. Uh, it doesn't change the, the power structure at all. Um, and on that, uh, also in the last decade or so, there's been a dramatic increase in the number of people identifying with Marxism and, and Maoism and Stalin, and you see it all over Facebook. Um, you know, that, that too can be a, a form of masturbation. What I want people to do is if you're serious, quit farting around, put your boots on the ground, and help build the Panther movement. Whether it's the Black Panther Party, the White Panther Party, the Brown Berets, the Young Lords, uh, Fury, uh, any of the groups in the Rainbow Coalition. And if you don't fit in one of those groups, start your own. You know? But, you know, let's get this movement rolling. And then the only way to do it is to put your boots on the ground in the communities and go to work for the people on a nine, you know, a day-to-day -day, uh, basis to build a revolutionary movement that's going to change the world. That's all I wanted to say. All power to the people. Oh, my next. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Um. As far as, uh, okay, so as far as voting, um, when four or five was in office, you saw a lot of the left, and we're not talking progressive libs, we're talking the radical left. A lot of them, a lot of us did come out to vote um, to get out what we, who we thought was worse than the other. Um, as far as, my question is, is that for anybody, um, as far as unifying the left, because people don't understand that even the political spectrum we're talking about, right? So as far as unifying the radical left for, the, for now or for the future, how do we do that when there are some ideological differences without putting each other down, without fighting with each other? Because what I'm seeing right now is the radical left is basically fighting with each other. There doesn't seem to be like a core unified vision. Um, can I can I take on that question? Uh, this is Chairman Shaka. All power to the people. Power to the people. I think I think that you already see the left unifying. Look at what we have in the Rainbow Coalition. Uh, we have various organizations that have agreed to a specific set of policies, and we have a statement that is universal enough to incorporate their particular grievances against the enemy system. But you would never see a holistic left because we have to take into consideration that, like you said, there's a political spectrum. You have social Democrats, you have Marxists, you have anarchists uh, that mm -hmm. are Marxists, anarchists that are communists. You have some of us that are uh, communists and nationalists, mm -hmm. but we are all on the left. But what distinguished everyone is our political practice 
uh, uh, emanating from a correct ideological line. You know, but I think the movement, the people will uh, uh, give us a basis from which we can unify some of the left, but expecting that everyone on the left will be down with us would only set ourselves up for defeat. So I just think that we need to get out there, get organized, put boots on the ground, build uh, base areas of social, cultural, and political power. And then out of that, we'll be able to write, sit down and say, this is the left. This person has joined on to the left. But expecting that from a theoretical academic standpoint is a bit misleading. All power to the people. That's all I want to say. All power to the people. I just want to piggyback off that for like five seconds and uh, discuss the Lenin quote about how we need unity between Marxists, not unity between Marxists and distorters of Marxism. Um, all power. All power. So I think that brings us to zombie. And um, then we have comrade fist that's going to take us out with a poem. Unless yeah, anybody just, else wants to speak last minute. Sorry. I was just real quick. Well, oh, what was that? I'm sorry. Go ahead, comrade. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, to in, in reference to what Jake was talking about, about revolution and stuff. I think we have to acknowledge that the, the political powers in this country and the 1% have done a very good job into manipulating this country into a position where revolution is extremely difficult mm -hmm. because we've got we've got 64% of the people in this country that live paycheck to paycheck you know, I'm sitting and I'm watching, I'm watching all of these actions in France and it is like the entire damn country, you know, mm -hmm. but they have free health care and they mm -hmm. have, you know, they're going to, they're going to get paid whether they're, they go to work or not. They have all of this paid time off. They have all of these social safety nets in place where they can do those things. And our government has done, that is the one thing I have to give them credit for, mm -hmm. is that they have manipulated this entire country into a position where in order to really get to the point where we can enact a revolution, we have to accept the fact that we are going to lose a lot of people and we're going to have a lot of people that can't participate in that revolution because of their life circumstances you know if you're if you're a parent who lives paycheck to paycheck and doesn't even have 500 bucks in the bank for an emergency situation how are you going to go out and fight against a system that is keeping you right where you are and has put you there for a purpose. I mean, it's, it's going to be tough. It's going to be, it's going to be, we, we talked about this a couple nights ago in a live on TikTok. It is going to be a situation where people literally are going to have to see their own family members starve. 
they're going to have to see their own family members be negatively affected by this system before they go, you know what, excuse my language, you know what, fuck it, it's time. And, and that's unfortunate. I mean, I think we have to figure out how to overcome all of that. Um, and I hope to hell we can, but, you know, and like Jake said, I mean, one of the, re and, and Papo just said it too, those, those dual power structures, you know, but are we at a point? I mean, and, and I'm asking you guys this because I, I know how I feel about it. Are we at a point where we don't even have time to get those dual structures in place? I think we've reached a critical point and I'm not sure we have time to get those dual structures in place before everything's going to collapse. So that was it. Thank you. All uh, power to the people. I just want to respond to that really no quick. Problem. You know, I, I'm a revolutionary optimist, you know, uh, and it's not, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not putting you down or anything like that, but that that's like a defeatist line. Um, you know, we, we, I, I'm not of the view that we're out of time, you know, uh, even if the, even if, uh, you know, the South, uh, the Southern United States becomes uninhabitable within the next 15 years, we're still not out of time, right? Even if there's only a sliver of land across the globe that is temperate, right? we're still not out of time. Anywhere there's people, there is power, right? That's the Fred Hampton quote. And that will always be, as long as there are groups of humans around and power structures, there will always be ways in which we can organize people toward a better, more collective arrangement. And so, you know, and I'm also not of the view that, you know, a revolution is is going to be so necessarily so devastating for the people it could be you could look at what happened in vietnam and this is an ex a good example of heading into what i wanted to really get to um you know you you talk about um you you talk about you know what what it's going to take for people to realize that they have to engage in a revolutionary situation you know we can bring them there you know but it's going to take professionals who are willing to make sacrifices, right? And I'm talking about people who are going to have to make the choice between dedication to organizing the people, and they may lose their job. They may have to, they may have to lose their apartment. They may have to go from city to city, right, in a car with a couple of kids. You know, this is the kind of thing that, that you, you may have to engage in if you want to be a professional at this stage. We don't have the infrastructure to support you, right? But if you take that commitment and you put that work in, right? And you can build that infrastructure, right? That is how you get to a point where, okay, I made the sacrifice for all of you, right? You got the collect, the small collective of dedicated professionals made that sacrifice for everybody else, right? They went out and built the infrastructures. They took the ideas of the people in the community and they built something for that community so that all of them can benefit. And then the next person who wants to make that commitment doesn't have to get into the situation where they're homeless, doesn't have to be in a situation where they may have to lose their job because they're gonna be sustained regardless. 
And that's what we need to build. And it doesn't matter if people are migrating from the Southern United States up to the North, or if uh, a, a nuclear war happens, it doesn't matter what happens, right? If there are human beings alive on this planet, revolution is possible. It's always possible. So that's, that's my view, you know? Uh, I'm not defeatist about this at all. Um, I'm confident in the relationships that people can have with one another, the collectives that they can build, you know? So. If that's at all, uh, if that's all you yeah, have to say, uh, Captain Africa is next. Um, I just wanted to say that <laughs> for the sake of time, we are going to close the floor after the people that have their hand up right now. So we have Captain Africa, Tristan, Kama, Papo, and then um, Com Comrade Fist is going to take us out with a, with a poem. So I got poems. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I hope this is being recorded in the screen. This is the best conversation I've heard on the issues that we're going through right now on any platform I've listened to. I hope this, this is out where we can get this out for people to hear it. So, um, and what she said, what, what that comrade said a few minutes ago, um, I don't think it was a fetus. I think she was being realist, like how some people see reality, how they see what's going on. I don't think she tapped out. She tapped out, she wouldn't be here. But it's, but it's, um, it is our duty to show them that that is not, that is not the strategy or the way to look at it. Like you said, we have to say where they're speaking. I mean, there's power. Even if there's a small sliver of land, if it's two, three, four, five people there that understand dialectic materialism, that are ready to fight, there's power. You can make power. So, like, it, don't, it doesn't matter what they do. You know, I think it's too late. I think we should have been, we should have been done this, like, uh, um, a generation ago, two generations ago. Like, All power to the rad. people. Like, like, like Tom just said, Tom said, like, you got to get the boots on the ground. We got to go to work. Yo, this stuff is not going to happen organically. Everybody's not going to wake up tomorrow and be like, yo, we need to do this shit. That's what dual contending power is. And your duty as an activist, as a revolutionary, this shit ain't easy. You're going to have sacrifices. Yo, right now, the landlord is trying to keep us out of our home because we're trying to build a tenant association. That shit come with it. We can't get a job in the city because we attack the political system. That's part of the shit. You got to go out of the city, go like two, three cities down to try to get a job to be able to survive in this society. That's part of the shit. That's the sacrifices you make on the daily, on the daily, the one who can push this shit forward. But you got to build it. You got to build the infrastructure. Like, you got to come together and build the co-op. You know, centralized, centralized um, capital is what makes political power. We need to centralize our capital and how we survive on this space. We need to build these bridges and work together. That's how you build the infrastructure to teach the next generation that these people are savages. You can't do that by just waiting for it to happen organically. It takes the work of revolutionaries, and that's what makes you special. So when you get off this thing tomorrow, understand that and try to put the motherfucking co-ops together. And the co-op means we own the shit. It's our shit. So like we can sustain ourselves. So if it's a mother, she's making paycheck to paycheck. Like she don't have to be at all the motherfucking rallies. She don't have to, 
but she could be on the media like this. She can come to the political education class. She can start to know so she can teach her children. That's how that you bring them in. Those that are willing. You can't force people. Those that are willing. And you work with those people to build that infrastructure. You know, we're building it here. With our chairman in North, we're building the infrastructure. Build it where you at. Come join it. What we doing. I mean, like, find somewhere to put yourself where you're building something material. Not waiting to vote for somebody that you know is not working for you. I'm going to shut up again. All power to the people. All power to the people. All power to the people. All right, that brings us to Tristan. Are you there, comrade? Who's speaking right now? Uh, Tristan. You sound very far away. Um, all right, I guess we'll go with Kama next and then we'll go back to Tristan. Yeah, um, as far as Comrade Africa um, stated, I don't, I, I agree. I don't think um, Comrade Kat is necessarily defeatist. I think she's being a little pragmatic, but at the same time, um, I think there's a balance. I'm, I'm probably um, one of, of a majority uh, on the left who is looking at uh, climate destruction. Um, and what we're seeing is uh, in 25 years or less, um, there's not going to be a way to reverse what's happening in the environment. And why, when I say this is, is that there's going to be a fight for resources. There's going to be a fight for essentials. There's going to be civil wars across the, the, the world. There's going to be neoliberal fascism happening in Europe. And they're going to take the example of America because America is going to go completely fascist once the, it's already fascist. What are we saying? It's going to, it's going to definitely um, accelerate certain um, ideologies of fascism. There's degrees of fascism. Um, so I guess my, my biggest concern right now is I'm, I'm looking ahead to generations where I'm not going to be alive. Uh, so are my children because of the access to social media and so much that they see as far as what they're researching now. Um, so basically, I just wanted to make that point that uh, climate destruction is real. What we're going to be uh, fighting for is our human species. So um, taking that into consideration, I see where uh, Comrade Cass is coming from in a lot of ways. I just wanted to say that. That's it. All right. Um, Papo, it's, it's your turn. Sorry, let me get back inside. I'm over here setting up for political education tonight in Homer Park. So, uh, hell yeah, all power to the people. Of, let me get out of the streets real quick. But, um, I know one of the comments that was said was about, um, let me see where, where we were, uh, about how do we sustain the revolution and everything. Um, this is why we need to, you know, make sure that we're taking over plots of land, starting to do our own community gardening, um, building our own infrastructures of, uh, you know. Um, Comrade Papa, we're losing your audio here. Come back to me in just a second. Hold on. 
Uh, Tristan, do you want to try again? I barely hear you. Basically, what I was going to say is that uh, that life under the uh, that we could take a page from the Russian Revolution, given how awful life was under the Tsarist regime. So. Uh, um, you know, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna like. You know, I'm gonna skip this. Take your time, brother. You good. All power to the people. You good. Rob, now I can't hear you. Yeah, Rob, you're you're. Uh... Oh shit, my mic was off. I, I was I was trying to say uh, I see that Paul's back. If he wants to. Uh... Okay, can you hear me? Oh yeah, I hear you good now. All right, all right. Sorry about that. Yeah, I was running in, getting everything set up for political education tonight. Um, so I I I know we were talking about how do we sustain something like this. Um, and what I was saying is, you know some guerrilla gardening, you know, taking over plots of land that, that are unoccupied and, and starting our own community gardens. Um, definitely is a step in the right direction. Also, you know, building these depots like Jake was talking about, where we have storages of, you know, resources, food, clothing, things that, you know, um, hygiene products, medical supplies, things like that, that can go out to the community. Uh, right now we have two of those operating in Humble Park right now um, that we work out of. That's where I'm setting up at right now. But, you know, it's not too late. You know, we could, things could definitely move pretty quickly once once we're determined and once we're focused enough to have to start moving in this way. Um, but, and, and then building networks like we have with the White Panthers moving, you know, being able to uh, pick up resources from them and, and send resources out that way. Same thing with the Brown Berets and, and the other groups that we work with, you know, interchanging those resources um, and building a sustainable network of, of uh, resources that don't depend on the state or the oppressor to um, operate. So that is all I have to say. But like I, I, I did want to say, you know, we do run political education in Humble Park every Thursday. So if anybody in Chicago is listening or watching any of these streams, um, definitely feel free to reach out and um, I'll get you set up so that you could come in and, and get, get some political education and, and see where you fit in going forward.
All power to the people. All power to the people. All power. All power, All power. to the people. Uh, Zen, did you want to say anything before we uh, wrap up? Um, I would like to take a moment to point out that uh, everything that we've discussed here tonight, well, that you guys have, I've mostly sat here silent because <laughs> Rob and I's role tonight is mostly to facilitate this, but uh, this makes me think of what Bell Hooks had to say in her book, Killing Rage, Ending Racism. And she was speaking to the intersectionality that this is not just an amalgam of various fights. This is all one battle. She labeled this as the fight against white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. That all of these things come to the table here. This is one massive fight. This is one revolution. You cannot end any of those problems individually without ending all of them. And that's why we can't reform this away. Our only solution at this point is that revolution, building this dual power and building the communities up where we can actually survive without the current system, without their infrastructure. We have to build our own. We have to come together. We have to recognize that human rights apply to all humans, not just, oh, well, here's this special class and that special class. No, this is a massive problem that was built to be this problem for the purpose of keeping people divided along those lines of race and gender and class, the whole nine yards, because that is what upholds capitalism. So I would just like to say thank you to every one of you for coming on tonight and having this discussion with us. And, you know, hopefully educating the masses that are out there watching this and seeing, like, where we are coming to the table with this because it has gotten to the point where we are beyond talking about just defunding or, you know, abolishing the police. That's one facet of the problem. We literally need revolution in order for people to actually survive. This system is not broken. It is operating exactly as it was fucking built to operate. It is the entire system that we need to take down. All power to the people. All power to the people. Yes, all power to the people. All power to the people. I'm to pick up meds at Weiss's and Allentown. So I'll grab a couple things too. And then we can finish up tomorrow, uh, Saturday. The wife is here. Tom, Tom, you loud, Tom. <laughs> I don't think Tom realized we listened to your other conversation. <laughs> All right, go ahead. He muted yeah, himself. Yeah, yeah, he muted himself. <laughs> that's that's funny. Are we um, off yet or no? Uh, Sorry, al almost. Um, Comrade Fisk was going to read something to take us out. And then, uh, and then we'll cut the live. Comrade Thank you for Fist, having me, there? comrades. Oh, there you Yes, is. can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me All well? Power. All power. All power to the people. Thank you so much. It's been a long journey. I made it through, and I'm back here, and I'm grateful to be invited here. I want to send a much love and a shout-out to Jake motherfucking Hansberry, who's been holding it down. Comrade motherfucking Rob. 
Comrade motherfucking Shaka Zulu. Comrade Tom, motherfucking Big Warrior. And all the other comrades here. I'd like to start with just a little quote. Settle your quarrels. Come together. Understand the reality of our situation. Understand that fascism is already here. That people are dying who could be saved. The generations more will live poor, butchered, half lies if you fail to act. Do what must be done. Discover your humanity and your love of revolution. That was by Field Marshal Comrade George Jackson. The name of this poem is I'm Not Waiting. I wrote it in the Queensbridge Tech Lab and finished it across the street at the floating hospital on July 7th. Listen up, motherfuckers. I'm not waiting. I'm not weighing in. I'm not eating weighing curds with Mr. Puffet. I'm not eating turds. I'm not eating my words. Have you heard? I'm not waiting for buy-in. I'm not waiting for consensus. I'm not waiting for Mr. President to announce the truth has been revealed. I'm not waiting for court proceedings or for the sentence. I'm not waiting for the commander to give the order on a fight now and tomorrow and every day above ground. Justice for my daughter. Justice for their moms. Justice for my moms. Justice for my pops. I'm not waiting for the bots or the cops or the bomb to drop when Funk Flex premieres it. A new exclusive, breaking news. The documentary or the docudrama. Front page headline with a caption that reads, the truth is out and the slaves will all be freed. I'm not waiting, but I'm patient. I could kill, I could die. I could cry, but I could die, but I'm not waiting. I can't wait to get it on, but I don't know where it is. I'm looking and searching, bleeding and hurting. If not for me, then for me and the kids. If not for them, then for all the slaves. I awake every day with a ravishing need for truth and justice, like a wolf who need meat, a vampire who need blood. If I don't feed, I could die, but I gotta try. No, I can't just try. I gotta do, gotta do. What else is there? Because I can't wait. But I gotta be patient and I, I gotta do. Because justice ain't coming yesterday. A lot of yesterdays. And justice may not come tomorrow or a lot of tomorrows. But I can't wait. But I may have to wait. So I gotta do, do what I can to defend myself and my children. Do what I can to defend my hood in this building. Do what I can to defend my people. Do what I can to expose this evil like a plaque of pigeons versus mighty, mighty eagle. We need ice cube and injections deaths. Is he still here? Yeah. Wow. 
Wow. Wow. wow. Yo, I'm not done. I'm not come done. On, come on, come on, come on. Give me a chance. Give me a chance. Come on, come on, come on, brother. Come on. We need yes. Ice Cube and them injections that's lethal for these regals who claim lying and using, neglecting and abusing the poor whores who have no mores. It's not right, but it's not illegal. All power. All power to the all power to the people. I can't wait to get it on. Ooh, I can't wait to get it on like a red man, like a man, a father, a lover. I ain't standing by and watching them rip my family apart. I'm going in. I'm going in. I'm going in for the kill. You ever had wolf heart in a taco? Get the cilantro from Papo. You ever drank vampire blood? Tastes like sangria. Mama Mia, mwah. I got Satan by the neck and he's snitching on Hell's Kitchen. I got Satan by the neck and he's snitching on Hell's Kitchen. And this climax, the final act of trickery, he blowing up his own spots. So hickory, dickory, stickery, niggery, doc. The rat in the hat ran out of time on the doomsday clock. And I can't wait for vindication or for salvation. For you to love me, for you to forgive me, or for reparations. They said it could take generations. I can't wait for your top models to come out on the screen and announce that it is true. Or your top minds to pass out awards and money because of what they've discovered and been able to prove. You know how they do. I can't wait for a judge to rule justice, for a politician to propose a law, or for a legislature or parliament to pass it. Because I'm out here, my children out here, my people out here, and we getting our ass kicked daily. I can't wait for y'all to vote, to debate. I can't wait for y'all to open your hearts and minds and see, remove those moats and planks crab caked on your eyes. I can't wait to breathe. I'm not waiting for a grant, for approval, for y'all to crown your next chief or champ. I'm not waiting for a wife or for my children to grow up one day, show up and say, you were right all along, Bobby, I love you. I'm not waiting for a gang, society or army to show up or the cavalry to say, we heard your cries, we heard your pleas, we heard your prayers. Now you're free. I'm not waiting, I can't wait. 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 Wow, wow. Oh my God. I don't know what to say, wow. He snapped, he snapped, wow. That was fire, brother. Oh, man. That wow. Was fire. I'm speechless, too, comrade. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I tears. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you very much for having me and allowing me to perform the work that this movement helped inspire. All power. All power to the people. All power. All power. Um, All right. Um, well, yeah, that's what I was just going to say. I'm going to cut the live stream now. Um, thank you all for, for joining us. Um, the people in the Zoom room, if you want to stay here and talk for a few more minutes before we, you know, Nine minutes. carry on with our night, uh, that'd be great.
um, for everybody watching, um, thank you for joining us tonight. And, um, you know, like if you, if you like the conversation that we had tonight, make sure to, uh, share it with your circles. Um, and hopefully this isn't the last time that we do something like this. Hopefully this is the beginning of, you know, doing something like this regularly. This is without a doubt the, the best conversation that we've ever you know like uh hosted on our show so um i'm i'm really really humbled by that as well so thank you all for participating no thank you brother we appreciate you too for organizing it oh yeah we're welcome to come back and join us to do this again um let's talk and figure out you know we can schedule these a couple times a month because this conversation definitely needs to continue. We need to continue waking people the fuck up to the problems that we are really facing and solutions to actually address those. So thank you all for bringing your hearts, your minds, your souls to the table today. Please join thank us. Thank you. Thank you for organizing it too. All power to the people, comrades. And all, all power, power, Chairman. Thank you. All power.